2: Mistrata
3: with your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is heard Hell.
4: Let's talk about how not to talk about certain issues we're going to go over to the uk but this happens in america too i suspect it happens in other countries um the way you say things ask anybody ask your children ask your significant other how you say things matters almost as much as what you're saying and in the cultural and political realm it usually matters more because people want to hear things a certain way they don't want to be talked to certain other ways uh this is from sky news Um, A government minister has suggested that people struggling with the cost of living could take on more hours or move to a better paid job. Rachel McLean, the safeguarding minister, safeguarding minister. Just stew on that for a second. Told Sky News's Kay Burley that those were some of the ways households could, quote, protect themselves as prices soar. Now, the UK is having the same inflation problems we are. And we're going to give you an example of how not to talk about it if you're a sitting office holder, politician, commentator, or just want to be a decent human being. Ms. McLean said that every minister was looking at the issue as consumers face short term pressures such as high energy and food bills and added there was more help coming. So far, so good. And then it all went so terribly, terribly wrong. She added, quote, over the long term, we need to have a plan to grow the economy and make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, whether that's by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. And these are long term actions, but that's what we're focused on as a government. Oh, boy. No, no, folks can't just move to a better paying job. No, they can't just take on more hours. How out of touch and tone death can you get, whether you're in the UK, the US, or the United States of hippopotamus? That's never going to go off right. It's never going to come across right. It's going to sound condescending, out of touch, because it's condescending and out of touch. If people could just snap their fingers, mount their magical unicorn, and ride over to the better paying jobs, they would. But that's not how this economy is currently working. Yes, there's a labor shortage and people are having some options, which means they're leaving poor job environments or lesser paying jobs because they can get other ones because of the competitive environment. But even at that, that's not how you say that. You don't tell the plebes to just go get better paying jobs. And you sure as hell don't take people who are already working hard, who are already at their limit who just went through two years of COVID, who are in an uncertain environment, who are in an election year where they're getting bombarded on all sides about what they should think, feel, and want to do when they get to the ballot box to just go work more hours. The people that work more hours and work on an hourly wage already know exactly how many hours they work. They know how many hours they need to work, and they know how many hours they want to work. And many of them can't get the hours that they want Or they have too many and it fries them out and they're not able to work effectively. This is just tone-deaf idiocy from somebody who ought to know better. And whether it's in the UK or the US, we can point to other examples of this. This is very close to let them eat cake. We hear over and over again, well, they just need to work harder. Well, they just need to find a job. Well, they just need to put in more hours. Well, maybe they could find a better job. You can't snap your fingers and do things like that. You have to meet people where they are. Are they in an environment or in a place? In a piece I have coming out shortly where I did some research into the economics of that area, the average drive time for people who were working was over 31 minutes. That factors into things. Is it worth them to drive 31 minutes for a minimum wage job? How much of a job do they have to get to make that drive not only feasible financially, but worth their while? There's a lot of factors that go into things like the job shortage, like the financial crisis we're about to go through. Inflation is a tax on everybody, but it's especially a tax on the poorest among us because their dollar stretches the least. And now it's got to go even further. And then you start putting certain supply chain issues on top of it, and you have a recipe for disaster. And for a poll or a commentator or, frankly, anybody else to open up their line of inquiry and their analysis of the situation with just go get a better paying job or just work more hours is always going to make them look stupid, out of touch and heartless. And it kind of is. You can't stop for a minute and understand that people who are working in an environment where we're constantly talking about labor shortages and the eponymous, nobody wants to work. The ones that are already working are getting pushed to their limit because of those labor shortages. Good employees keep getting it handed to them, and handed to them, and handed to them because they're the only ones there. And eventually they reach their breaking point, too. Don't tell those people to work more hours. And there's only so much upward mobility certain classes of workers have. Yes, you can try to get them more education. You can try to get them more training. You can do some things policy-wise to open up an environment where they might have more options, but not all of them do. I am so sick and tired of unicorn rhetoric like this, the condescending rhetoric. It goes past parties and it goes past ideologies. Don't tell people to just go fix their lives, which is eventually what you're saying, like it's all their fault. It's not all their fault. These things are nuanced. The job market is complicated. The economy is complicated, and it's getting more complicated and less friendly to the workers. So before you open your pie hole, politicians, commentators, writers, talking heads on TV, remember a couple things. If you're talking and or writing words for a living, You are among the very most privileged people in our society, and before you start telling other people to just work harder, remember how good you have it and how privileged you have it, and that them working harder or them trying to get better is going to take a whole lot more than just your wishful thinking. Be mindful, be empathetic, be sympathetic, and above all, try to be a better human being. Because telling people to just do better when they can't is one of the cruelest things you can possibly do. More Hurt tell, right after this.
5: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
4: Dennis Sanders, our good friend uh, up in the Twin City area. He is a writer. He's a commentator. He's also a local pastor, man that wears many, many, many hats and does them all very well. He also has his own uh, platform that we're going to talk about in a minute to do some writing. And he also joins us at Ordinary-Times.com. Dennis, how are you, my friend?
1: I am doing well. Doing very well.
4: Always thrilled to talk to you, especially on this, because uh, we've been kind of kicking around wanting to talk about this for a while but uh, we were covering labor a while back. You did a little bit of pushback of how we covered labor, but let's get the bona fides first because you're from one of the great labor areas of the world, Flint, Michigan.
1: Yes, I was born and raised in in Flint. Uh, Both my parents were um, auto workers. So that meant that they were both members of the United Auto Workers, Um, different locals, but both members, union members.
4: So you've got that strong union background. You grew up in that area. But you've also seen the after effects where, you know, those great union jobs, those great union benefits didn't really play out for everybody too awful well, did it, in the long run?
1: No. And that's that's kind of the hard thing is um, growing up, as I did in the 70s and 80s, Flint had a – that was the thing that was going on in in the city. In the Flint area alone, there were about 80,000 people that worked for General Motors. And for those who don't know, General Motors actually had its start in Flint. Today, it is probably around 8,000. So that's, as you can tell, it's a huge amount of of jobs that were lost that really, really changed the city in ways that are, I think, for a lot of people, unimaginable.
4: Yeah, and this is a story, um, you're talking about Flint. Uh, you can talk about Youngstown, Ohio, where exactly. I have family that just decimated Black Monday, one of the, the <laughs> real labor stories in the history of the U.S. Pittsburgh, anywhere in the Rust Belt. Um, what you tell me, because you grew up with that, it's part of your DNA, that blue collar union labor, something that was a lot of pride in that. People said, I'm a union guy, and they meant it, and it meant something. But try to explain that to somebody of a later generation that, that's, that just thinks of Detroit as, you know, the Detroit area and the Flint area and the economic uh, recessions that happened as that faded away, try to take people back to that time growing up in that time when that was your whole identity almost, wasn't it?
1: It pretty much was. And it was a kind of an age of people. It was sort of in some ways, a family, Um, lots of things that GM sponsored that were made up part of the community and i think people had pride this was something that you could go into without going to college and make actually a, a fairly good um salary that you could support a family on and so i think the cost of the kind of the how people lived and everything was was pretty good obviously we weren't making as much as doctors or things to that extent but I think for um, people working in manufacturing, it was it was um, fairly good pay. It allowed people to do things they probably wouldn't have been able to do. And I think especially for African Americans who um, kind of like my dad came up from the South to places like Michigan for more opportunity. It it did get them that it got them more greater opportunity, greater economic benefits that they um, had. They would have never had had they just stayed in the South.
4: Yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. Okay, so the next step of that journey, though, of course, is the unions <laughs> diminish. We know unions in union labor, specifically in the United States of America, is at its lowest form of basically recorded since we started tracking it. Um, we know the industrials have gone down. You just mentioned it. Do we overblow how benevolent companies used to be? Was it union power that balanced it out? There seems to be a lot of myth-making and legends involved in these sorts of things. Try to cut through some of that for us. What what was it that changed so bad? It wasn't. It can't all be one and all the other. How do you kind of foresee it looking back on it now, and especially with the way you've been writing about it?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I think there were companies and people who believed that if you wanted to have um, people buying your products, you had to pay them well. Um, they believed in trying to help their local communities. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I did recently, a podcast on, um, someone by the name of Jay Irwin Miller, he was the um, CEO of Cummings Engine in um, Indiana. And there was actually an interesting article in The Atlantic kind of about his... All the things that he did to help benefit that local community um you know from helping you know bringing kind of world-renowned architects to build public buildings to all of that but it was also unions as well that um it's kind of that unions were pushing for for better wages um, for safer working conditions um just things to that extent that they we're pushing for, whether, and that sometimes meant going on strike um, to do that. Uh, one of the things that was um, really a part of Flint lore and part of labor lore is the 1936-37 sit-down strike um, in Flint, uh, where several of the factories, they basically literally stopped um, and sat down. And this was simply for that at that time to getting labor recognition the company, General Motors, didn't want to recognize the union. And this was a way for them to kind of make that possible. And I think once that happened, you know, again, it brought forth things like better benefits, healthcare, retirement, things that in a lot of cases we take for granted was done really because of labor. But it's not all, all labor and it's not all Benevolent companies. It's both. And I think in some ways we've lost both of those things in our modern culture.
4: See, I know that, you know, coming from West Virginia, if there was ever a group of people that ever needed a union, it was coal miners. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they owned you. They owned you with the script. You lived in a company house. They paid you with company script. It, it was terrible what was going on with the coal miners. You could do it with any other industry as well. But at the same time, the unions, kind of warped and developed they were not always the benevolent organizations they should have been either were they
1: no i think that's also important to know too unions sometimes also had a racist history um they wouldn't necessarily include african americans um in in their unions that that changed over time but that wasn't always the case and i think even in modern day They've been slow to adapt to kind of the changing nature of um, the market. Um, as we've become a more globalized society, you know, we have to find ways of how do we continue to support things like trade, not necessarily to the extent that it's hurting people, but, but I think that there are benefits to trade. And so how do you do that and also support workers? Um, and I think sometimes unions were slow in getting to that. Um, They were also sometimes slow in dealing with competition, um, especially with United Auto Workers in the 70s, as we started to see the rise of of Japan, um, especially in the car market. I think both General Motors and the unions were not quick in trying to figure out how to compete against um, these new these companies that were now kind of making their way into the American marketplace So, you know, there are always drawbacks to unions. And I think I always want to say that, you know, unions aren't perfect. um, And some of those problems do need to be uh, lifted up. But I also think, even as imperfect as they are, they do have a purpose in our society.
4: Yeah. And one of the things, because people knock me and think I'm anti union, I'm actually not anti union. I don't think unions are a one size fits all solution. I don't think they're this panacea where everything a union does is perfect because we know better with the record of that. I looked. This is one of the few things I think Europe actually does a better job than we do. Unions Mm -hmm. are not as adversarial. They're not as political. Uh, They work more in partnership. They're more symbiotic. How did it become so adversarial between unions and the companies? And again, it can't all be just one or the other, despite the way we're told it is that it's just these evil, wicked companies. Look, companies got to make money, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did this become so adversarial? And to the detriment of the unions, because we see the union membership, it's, it's the lowest it's ever been.
1: That's a good, kind of good question. I don't have a great answer to that, except that I think sometimes just in American society, we tend to be more adversarial um as a in our nature um as opposed to kind of in in Europe i think sometimes some some of the different um ways that our different societies came out of out of that you know my guess is especially in europe um it, well in the united states we have not really had a history of strong uh, socialist parties for for one um thing whereas there has been a strong case of that so Part of adversarial relationship probably was shown more in the voting booth than it was in actually the workplace. In um, as it is here, it's not as much shown in the work on the voting booth. So it showed itself in the workplace. Um, so I think that's kind of where the difference is. Um, at least it, it kind of like a guess from what I can observe. Um, but I think that that's something that probably needs to change. I, I think that the adversarial approach doesn't. That might have worked in the 1930s and 40s um, when this was a new thing, and part and companies weren't as amenable. But I think that we're in a different age now, and so I think that um, unions have to change with that, and um, maybe look at what Europe is doing, or to think about. I, I know that I believe it's Warren um, Cass who works with um, American Compass, which is a conservative. A think tank that um, tends to be more pro labor, but thinks that we should have something that maybe is instead of working with one company, that it's uh, the union is more based on a uh, different industries um, that makes it a little bit less um, confrontational, but more kind of working together. Um, so I think that there there is. Definitely room and necessity for unions to change with the times just because they exist doesn't mean that the way that they struct- are structured now is the way that they should always be structured.
4: Yeah, the old, uh, they call it the, the working guild or the trade guild model. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. We're talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. We're going to continue with him. After the break, uh, we're going to continue to talk about labor, union and otherwise. And also, he's got a great example of how labor and things change with Kmart and Sears a lot and the downfall of it, except in one place where it's still thriving. We'll talk about that when we come back. Our friend Dennis Saunders on her teller right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Hurt We're having a good time talking to our buddy Dennis Sanders, but kind of a serious topic on labor and unions and things of this nature. Uh, One thing about unions that always strikes me, I think they're really misbegotten in where they're picking their battles right now. Uh, Organized labor, especially big labor, they are all in on going against the gig economy, the uh, secondary economy, whatever you want to call it. Why do you want to alienate look, unions are down to something like 10% of the workforce. The gig economy is up to something like 30% of the workforce. Why are you picking a fight with the very people that you're arguing that you want to come into your unions and all you're really doing is alienate them because they're like, look, leave us alone and let us work. This seems really misbegotten to me.
1: That I totally agree with. Um, I think one of the worst things that I've seen, especially the the law that came out in California, which I think wreaked havoc on a lot of gig workers You know, I think part of it comes from this belief that they think that um, the gig economy is just exploitative. And so they think that, well, wouldn't you really want to just work in an office or or in an industry or whatever, um, like everyone else? Um, What I think unions don't realize is that the nature of work has changed. Um, There are a lot of people that want to work. their own they want to be contractors they they want the, the flexibility that comes with all of that and so coming in with a law that basically messes messes all of this up isn't helpful and it really just makes uh makes more enemies against unions than um what is necessary i mean if unions want to be of help in this changed economy then what they should be about is trying to create guilds or things to that extent that would help people who who do go into the gig economy instead of trying to basically mess up what they want to do, which is to work independently um, and to call their own hours.
4: Yeah. Here's where I depart from from some of our labor and labor friendly brethren. I think you absolutely have a right to start a union. I've been a supervisor in a company that was non-union. We had it hanging on the walls. I've had, I've, I facilitated the meetings for union reps to come into the non-union rep. We set them up in a break room. There's very specific rules how you have to handle those things. I've done all that. I've interacted with them. I know how those things work. My thing is you absolutely have a right to have a union, but that also means you should absolutely have a right to not have to go through a union to make your livelihood and that just seems to be the disconnect with some of the big labor folks and, and people that I know that are genuinely pro-worker, and they really believe that that's the best thing to do. If you're just changing one tyranny of a company to the tyranny of a union, and especially if you have a union that also has the backing of the federal government, which all too often is the case nowadays, that's, there's no way you can convince me that that's pro-worker, because if the union has the backing of the government and you don't have a choice to be in the union or not, where's a worker go then?
1: Yeah, and I agree. One of the things I remember growing up that I can just remember, even as a kid, I didn't like this, is um, the whole concept of a, I think they would call it a closed shop, where basically, if you took a job, you are automatically part of the union. And there was a part of me that was bothered by that, because you didn't have a choice of whether you wanted to be in the union or not. And I, I get what they're trying to get at with um, collective bargaining and all of that, but you've taken that person's choice of what they want to do out of their hands and just made them, and has forced them to do something that they don't want to do. And I think, you know, that's kind of related to what's going on with the gig, gig workers, is this belief that unions are good, so everyone should, should, can benefit and realizing that there is also choice in this. People don't have to join a union. Um, unions are voluntary organizations. And even in spite of all the good that I think that they do do, and they do a lot, that is it's good, they're voluntary. And people shouldn't be forced to be part of one if they don't want to be part of one. And I think that's okay. That's part of, to me, that's part of what it is to be an American. It's a sense of choice of what we want to do.
4: It's part of what's killing the unions too, that the uh, yeah. union was always supposed to be the voice of the worker. Well, everybody's got a voice now because they all have social media accounts. Like they can Google what their company's doing. They don't need their union rep to explain stock options to them. They all, has, has technology just kind of made part of what the traditional union was obsolete?
1: They've made part of it. I don't think they've made all of it. Uh, um, and I think this is maybe where the initial pushback came when, um, when I wrote to you a while back is the belief that because um, we have a more, um, I don't know, atomized society, um, social media, things that allow us to speak up, we tend to think that we have more power than we used to. And I think that there, there, in some cases that's true, but in other cases it's not. You may not have the power to say, I would like to have better benefits or to deal with better health care. So there are some areas in some industries, not every industry, your one voice doesn't always um, carry when you're up against a management. And so that that that's where you would see a need for a union to kind of be that voice, where I think the... I think the 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 caveat is you have to want to be to have them be your voice. They can't just come in and be your voice um, that I think is wrong because that turns people off. people don't want to have something being done for them, and in some cases, they don't want necessarily a one size fits all thing um, so unions are still necessary but in this day and age, in the age of social media, in the age where of a gig worker, it's not gonna operate like it did in 1968. Um, we're not that economy. And that's, I think, part of the problem of why unions aren't doing as well is because they haven't necessarily always changed with the times.
4: Now, let's talk a little economics for a second. And this is CNBC has some data here is we talked about underlying effects in the economy that doesn't show up. One of them was the service workers. When schools are closed, they don't have child care. So people that pick up shifts and things like that, they don't have the ability to work. That messes with the data. It messes with the economy. Here's another stat that's showing up now that we're post covid, but still happening. Forty two percent. This is according to CNBC. We'll link to it in the show notes. Of Service workers have no input into their schedules. You think, well, nobody has an input in their schedules. We're not talking about whether they work or not. We're talking about when they work. Listen to these statistics. There were more than 15 million people working in retail services in May, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. When it comes to precarious schedules, though, workers in these fields experience an array of offenses. In the fall of 2021, for example, workers reported the following. This is a survey. 64% of workers received less than two weeks notice of their forthcoming work schedule. 57% experienced shift time changes, including having one day or less notice of these changes. 36% were scheduled a closing shift when an opening shift the following day. And 42% of workers had no input at all into the timing of their work schedules. Now you might be rolling your eyes a little bit and going, well, what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot when you're talking about 15 million people, who can't schedule more than a day or two ahead of time, and you start thinking about things like childcare, you start thinking about things like school, you start thinking about their own contributions to the economy when they might do their own shopping or their own travel or their own whatever else. These are economic factors that we don't think of because they're more on the cultural side of like, oh, well, I don't know how often I'm working. But when you start looking at the labor shortage issues, the fact that the labor market is booming, but there's not enough workers, this is one of those non-specific factors that is worth talking about. People get tired of getting jerked around. And when they have an option to go to a different job, it's stuff like this on top of pay, on top of benefits that really affect whether or not they stay in a job. So the high stress, high mobility jobs where those schedules are bad, and especially with non-grade employers who are addicted to last-minute scheduling, this kind of stuff is why you're having trouble hiring people. It's one of those stats that doesn't show up, but it's starting to make a difference and something worth considering. More hotel after this. <music> speak to that one-size-fits-all approach for a second because to be fair there are lots of companies that abuse the independent contractor labor to not pay benefits to not do wages that does get abused by companies the thing here though is i don't know that a one-size-fits-all well we can just unionize the entire gig economy is going to work because the gig economy organically grew because it went into lack of a better term, gaps of employment, people that wanted more freedom, people that wanted more independent thing, companies rose through those things, putting this old solution uh, across the board onto a new and burgeoning sector of the economy that's growing by leaps and bounds. And not everybody in the gig economy is miserable. A lot of people like that flexibility. You and me are in the gig economy. We're both freelance writers and, and media people. How did, I think this may be just one of those things where we're trying to do an old solution to a new problem and you're just going to end up making a bigger mess. Am I wrong there?
6: No, you're absolutely correct. They're still using guidelines to me that seem largely reminiscent of the 1930s. Labor law of the 1930s and the scenarios that we have right now, very different. It's not the 1930s anymore, it's 2022. We have a lot of different metrics at play. We have worker kind of makeup that is very different. We don't thankfully see as much misclassification as possible. Certainly some companies may engage in it and if they are abusing those powers, they can have those situations rectified and, and uh, be targeted or not targeted, but um, essentially uh, reformed if they have been engaging in those abuses. But they want to take it a step further. And we saw this play out in California, where they said this is to essentially address, in, in California's Assembly Bill 5, to rectify a huge, huge problem. It's only going to affect a small slither of the gig economy, the rideshare workers in their eyes, but it in fact extended well beyond rideshare workers who they claimed were missing out on benefits for healthcare and dental and other things that they were wholly misclassified under the eyes of California labor law. But it, it, of course, like every law with unintended consequences or intended consequences, I think in this case, they saw successful, highly skilled independent workers who don't really hinge their work output on the need for benefits or the need to unionize. They saw their workload shrink demonstrably I know on the offhand that a lot of people had to either give up gig work or freelance work altogether. They had to move to a different state. They had contracts canceled on them because people from out of state were very scared about what California's law would entail and said, well, we have to unfortunately cancel your contract because of the new labor law that California has into place. So a lot of people in California saw a huge loss of work. I think it's probably upwards of at least a million people. There's no uh, key figures yet, but I know at least that figure, a lot of people in either a a permanent fashion or at least a partial fashion have seen their freelancer livelihood eroded in some capacity. And I wish they did have those numbers more, but I was told by people that at least a million people have seen some sort of uh, setback in terms of their employment status and, and kind of their success as freelancers. And we see these kind of copycat efforts in other blue states In Virginia, and actually in your state of West Virginia, I know the governor signed into law last year, probably one of the strongest independent contractor worker laws in place to ensure that the IRS standard and the common law standard would be adhered to and that companies, especially labor unions, those who work, companies that work with labor unions or labor unions themselves would not abuse uh, claims of misclassification to displace independent workers from the workforce. And Virginia is starting to see that language too. Um, Like you had mentioned, I was in the process of testifying and they at last minute carried the bill over to next year. It's a good thing. So the Democrat controlled Senate wouldn't kill the bill, uh, which is ripe for potential. And they wanted the governor's office, I was told, wanted to rewrite it or lend some commentary a bit more to make it stronger. So there is an interest from this new administration in Virginia to pass it. But you see, obviously, California and a lot of states responding to California in the opposite direction to protect independent workers because I think red state governors largely recognize that this is a burgeoning workforce. Uh, There's largely no misclassification of very limited instances when it's an independent worker who voluntarily engages in a contract with companies. Probably like you, I voluntarily enter agreements with companies. It's mutually agreed to terms. I get to decide and agree to the payment. Uh, If I want benefits, I can set aside money myself. That's not really something I hinge my work out. Workout put on um, because that's very minor. <laughs> if I wanted to do that, I would have stayed in a nine-to-five job. But essentially, I think people, especially big labor, misunderstands why people go into this, and I think they're kind of ignoring where the trends are going economically speaking. Especially in wake of the pandemic, we see a lot of people leaving nine-to-five jobs in what has been billed as the Great Resignation or now the Great Reshuffle, and people have cited flexibility, more free arrangements more freedom to choose who to work with, your work hours, things of that sort, and having more happiness and and better well-being, mental well-being, things of that sort, more time with family. A lot of people have cited those factors as reasons for them leaving traditional workplaces for these more flexible work arrangements, or maybe even traditional jobs now allowing for remote and more flexible options. I've seen that some companies are doing that as well, recognizing that they risk losing workers to flexible work arrangements if they don't adopt these more flexible type of scenarios to their workers. So I would say the regulators are going against the trends. They're failing to see that the regulatory framework of the 1930s does not apply to the regulatory framework of today. And I think you see a lot of workers telling regulators, do not regulate us out of existence. Do not reclassify us, because if you do, it'll have a lot of very bad consequences for people, for the GDP, for people's well-being, And for just kind of this new and kind of last, I would say, iteration of entrepreneurship that you see pure unadulterated entrepreneurship that can take someone from being self-employed to running a small brick and mortar shop to maybe one day running a big business
4: talking to Gabriella Hoffman. When we come back, we're going to dig into that labor just a little bit. There's an appointee that's very important trying to get into the labor department that we're going to discuss. Uh, Also talk about something not labor related. Uh, She's got a little bit of conservation work she's been doing. Talk about that to finish up. We'll be back with Gabriella Hoffman of Young Voices right after this on Hard Talk. (laughs) Uh, Welcome back to Heard Tell. We're continuing our conversation with Gabrielle Hoffman. All right, here's here's something that we get into with social media a lot. Um, People want to equate, especially people that don't want to argue in good faith, that, well, if you're against unions, you're against labor and you're against workers. I'm not against union. You'd mentioned it. I'm from West Virginia. Look, if anybody ever needed a union, it was the coal miners. And talk about the 30s, even before that, Blair Mountain back in the teens and 20s. Um, It's not that I'm against the unions. I'm against the current itineration of big labor unions in America as they exist now, where they have the kind of antiquated model like you talked about, and it becomes a power structure. And now that you have a power structure like that, that is combining with the force of the federal government to give them what they want. My fear is these labor unions, and I think we have some data to back this up. When you talk about something like the gig economy, you're going to be trading one poor taskmaster for a new taskmaster that's even got less ability to fight against it.
6: Yeah, it's With the discussion about enhancing big labor, so you've probably heard about the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is kind of the federal companion to California's AB5. And this would be a complete restructuring of employment law, labor law as we know it. And I think a lot of us argue that it would take us back to the 1930s. And again, it doesn't match kind of the standards of where labor law and where labor trends are going. And the PRO Act, in addition to kind of reclassifying or, in their words, misclassifying, addressing misclassification concerns of workers, they would essentially repeal right to work. So states wouldn't be able to operate. I think there are 27 states right now in the country, West Virginia and Virginia being one of them that uh, allow their workers to not have to join a union as a prerequisite for employment. So they would essentially make it so you repeal right to work and to have your employment hinge on union membership. Additionally, uh, you would give greater oversight to labor unions under the product if it were to pass that would essentially make it so union bosses would essentially dictate the affairs of employer-employee relations. So an employer will essentially have to give worker information, to these union bosses who are now intermediaries in businesses if this hypothetical situation were to play out. And we don't know exactly what information they would obtain. Would they obtain a worker's social security number, their birth date, home address, bank account statements? Essentially, how much power are we giving them and how much private information are they gonna be able to have at their disposal? So a lot of critics of the PRO Act have said, there's a lot of privacy concerns, especially giving labor unions more emboldened power to carry out these actions. So there's privacy concerns. There's obviously free association concerns. um, And essentially the unions would gain or seek to gain or potentially even become like $3 billion richer. And they're a pretty influential financially wealthy uh, welfare organization. That's how they're classified, I guess, in the nonprofit space. And they would essentially become more wealthier, all the while disempowering a workforce that's about three times as larger as them. So this would give unions unchecked power. You wouldn't be able to contest a case against them. You wouldn't be able to withdraw yourself from a union. They would make it extremely hard for you to not have your work be conditional on union membership. So everything would be at the behest of unions and you wouldn't be able to prove otherwise or you wouldn't be able to identify otherwise. Even if you're self-employed, they want everyone I hate to say it, to return back to a traditional job, a nine-to-five job, even though people are willingly and voluntarily leaving nine-to-five jobs, you can't force people back into those arrangements. And we saw the pandemic actually give license to the fact that you can go away from a traditional job and you don't need a union. And you probably have seen the headlines where even though there was often discussions about different companies allowing their workers to organize or different worker organization efforts, efforts to collectively bargain in Starbucks, and other different conglomerates, we saw a shrinking of the union workforce in this country over a year. It went from 10.8% of the workforce to 10.3%, despite the big media push, despite big labor supposedly being more emboldened, despite uh, a lot of the puff pieces and the positive stories about this is people have a positive view of unions, but for some reason, the, the union workforce is shrinking. And there's a disconnect between the argument, because how could Such glowing, raving reviews of these entities, which if you look at the polling, they're actually more mixed. And if you look at kind of more bipartisan polling, not polls conducted by labor unions, it's actually more mixed or kind of in the negative for labor unions. People don't want to change what currently already exists, including Democrats who may be supportive of big labor aims. And you see a lot of independents and, of course, Republicans say that unions shouldn't be given more power. And this is evidenced through a Forbes tape poll that was released last June about the PRO Act. And you actually saw pretty bipartisan widespread support about opposing different tenets, the right to work revoking component, the ABC test implementation and giving unions more access to private information. And so that carries over to uh, the nominee who we were kind of alluding to earlier, David Weil, who wants to return back to his wage and hour division administrator role, and he would like to implement aspects of the PRO Act, especially this ABC test when it comes to worker classification efforts. He also has a bone to pick with the freelance economy in the greater scheme of things. He calls this the fissured workplace. He sees it in a very negative light. So he's not a friend, and I don't think he'd be a fair arbiter of labor law with respect to this. I think he would create law and regulation that would make it harder for people to independently. Work and also for franchises and franchisees to operate as well. He has had a bone to pick with franchisees as well. Um, And he also had uh, kind of the gumption to extend the overtime pay rule under the Obama administration and the courts put him in check. So he wants to kind of play around with those three things as well. So a lot of people in the independent workforce, whether they're independent contractors or they're franchisees or franchise business owners, They'll have to be very concerned about his potential return to the Department of Labor again, if he were to be confirmed. But right now, I haven't seen any indication that his confirmation will move through to a full Senate vote yet. I think Senator Joe Manchin has expressed concerns with him privately, and I'm not sure about the two Arizona senators and Mark Warner, but there has been some opposition to him on a bipartisan basis as well. But those are kind of the, the two things that people should be aware about.
4: Yeah. But when it comes to him, we're talking to Gabrielle Hoffman about labor issues. When it comes to him, even if he's not confirmed, this goes to what you're talking about, about how power works when we're dealing with labor and how the government and big unions and the workforce and workers themselves all meet, because most people probably have never heard of the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor. But it's these kind of bureaucratic administrative postings. They're appointed positions, so they have to go through review. Theoretically, that's through our representatives. But let's not get into all that right at the moment. Uh, that that's a position that has immense power. When you start talking about things like the gig economy, doesn't it? So, just explain for a second, though. This is this is really important that it sounds kind of like, oh, well, this is just a government posting. No, this really, really matters if you're trying to be an Uber driver or if you're trying to work for Amazon as a third party carrier or pick whatever you want, freelance writing, whatever the case may be.
6: Yeah, if he were to return back to the agency, especially with his animus towards it, I think that presents a huge conflict of interest. You're supposed to be a neutral arbiter if you're presiding over lawmaking or rulemaking in this capacity. You should have someone who's more fair to it, who hasn't written against the gig economy or called for its uh, it's it's a uh, quashing in a sense. I, like I said, I think a lot of these regulators in the Biden administration and those in the agency side just are denying reality. Like I said, they have a huge disconnect between the workforce and kind of special interests or kind of the the concerns that they're hearing they still kind of view labor law in the lens of the 1930s. They think that there's bad workplaces, things are dirty, people, workers are dying, and that there has to be a huge remedy, a big sweeping remedy to these problems. But they're taking maybe uh, some case studies, and certainly there are some concerns. I know people have heard about Amazon. I, I've, I've seen about some of the worker conditions there. I can't really weigh in on it because I don't know exactly if it's true or not, but... I know a lot of people, even some on the right, have said, well, Amazon kind of exploits their workers and does this. And then you hear other people say, well, maybe this is a mischaracterization. Um, but a lot of people have jumped onto kind of these bigger companies that have uh, tapped into independent contractors because they want them to unionize. Although, when workers at Amazon were presented the opportunity to unionize, especially in the Alabama plant, if I'm not misinterpreting that case, They actually overwhelmingly rejected efforts to unionize by like 70-something percent to 20, 30-some-odd percent. So when workers are presented the opportunity to collectively bargain, they don't want to. And I think you even see some de-unionization efforts, too. There was a chicken poultry plant in Delaware that recently brought to a vote whether or not to continue to be unionized. And the workers ultimately decided to withdraw themselves from the union. So you don't hear those stories often. And certainly you can cherry-pick. As to what stories resonate, you could say, well, this company is engaging in this egregious labor abuse, but what about the opposite where labor unions are effectively tampering with business affairs and the workers who have the decision to unionize or not, they don't want to unionize and they're not given the choice in some cases to reject unionization efforts if they're in a non-right to work state, or they decide to repeal uh, unionization or collective bargaining agreements. So it could be framed in any way, obviously, but I think they're ignoring the fact that workers don't want to be, again, regulated in a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think people see because of the pandemic that maybe the traditional work framework, including union jobs are maybe not suitable for people going forward. And I think what people fail to understand is yes, while we may have some, I have personal gripes with labor unions, I think they have exceeded their power. Uh, They're not really representative of all workers. In right to work states, they can exist. We see here in Virginia with powerful teachers unions, even though we're a right to work state, they're able to exercise muscle and prevent certain policies from going into place. It doesn't mean they can't exist. It just means that you have to allow for people to to not want to unionize if they don't want to. And we want to have coexistence. I don't think they wanna have coexistence with us. And that's probably a sinister look into the issue, but we can have coexistence. I don't think they're open to having coexistence with us because they view us as competition.
4: All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
2: Back
4: to HerTel. Okay, promises made, promises kept. We talked the UK Tory election and by default, the new prime minister a couple weeks ago and our f- friend Lettuce Bromrowski. Here she is. She promised to come back and discuss it. And as we record this, my friend, uh, not even about an hour ago, we saw Liz Trust roll up on number 10. Y'all have yourselves a new prime minister.
5: Yes,
2: we do. Very, very exciting times here in the UK. There's been, I mean, quite literally so much going on. And to be honest, everyone's rather unenvious of the position that Liz has found herself in at the moment. So she was voted in yesterday, technically winning 57 percent of the vote to Rishi Sunak's 42 percent of the vote, which in and of itself was actually quite a big surprise to the British public. I mean, throughout these past five or six weeks that we've seen Everyone has been saying that Liz has been the clear front runner all the way. In many ways, it would be a complete landslide. And yet, really, she she only got 57%. To put that into perspective, uh, Boris Johnson in 2019 got 66% of the vote. So... Already, that is slightly showing that there still remains these kind of divisions within the Tory party. And over the next week and the coming months, really, that's going to be a major pulling point on her point is, although this has technically been a win, over half of the Tory members who could vote in this didn't vote for her. There were 50 MPs who refrained from voting um, for either Rishi or Liz, full stop. Um, and only three MPs uh, sort of transitioned from Ritchie's campaign to Liz's campaign. So although that you know she's got in, she's won. That's fine. Well done, her. There's much, much more work to be done to make sure that the Tory Party remains as one and goes forward, remaining as one.
4: Yeah, let's start in the party though, before because she's gonna, she's got some real headwinds as prime Mm. minister. We'll get to that in just a second, but let's start within the party though, because the narrative proved to be true. The narrative was there's going to be the Rishi and then everybody else vote, he would be very popular within the party. And then when it went to the people, the larger party, I mean, it was going to invert, and Liz Truss was going to be the favorite. That's pretty much how it played out. But that's also kind of the roots of what you were just saying is we knew there was going to be some division. We knew this wasn't going to be a run. It was a healthy victory, but it wasn't a runaway victory. Like you said, it's not the 60-40 you usually see in the last three or four of these. That's really the core of this was you have the Bors thing happen. People really didn't know how to react to it. People didn't know how to deal with him, although to his credit, he basically stayed out of this, uh, which some people wondered whether he would or not. He did. This is the core to the problem here is she's already got all these other headwinds she may have the most fractured conservative party of any conservative prime minister in recent memory going forward.
2: No, completely. And I, there there have been a few things that have arisen in British media um, since the win yesterday. One, the most notable, although you never want to overanalyze these situations too much, One of the most notable was yesterday when her name was announced as the winner, rather than what is usual and rather courteous, you turn to your opponent, you shake their hand, then you go up on stage and you give your speech. She, in fact, sort of powered on past him and went straight up on stage and in many ways sort of shunted him in that way. Um, But like you said, this has so far been an election Very clearly for the Tory or Conservative Party leader, the real election and the one that's coming up will be this general election, which happens in, you know, 18 months or so, two years or so. We can't quite predict that. Um, But I imagine we're going to see a huge change in the way that she is presenting herself. Now that she's got power, she's going to have to appeal to the wider public and from all the polling that we've seen up to this point Rishi has been the one who's been far more popular with the wider public than Liz Truss and so she's not only going to have to turn around the opinions of her own um, other party members but now she's going to have to turn around opinions of the general public and Liz Truss even five weeks ago when we first spoke um, she She was no one's first choice. You know, she she was almost always sort of at the bottom of those first rounds of removing people. And kind of once someone lost out, so Tom Tugendhat, he got kicked out and then Kemi, they got kicked out. Um, She sort of absorbed their voters and their MP supporters. But she didn't really ever, unlike Rishi, start off with that big base of MP supporters.
4: Yeah, let's talk about Liz Truss herself, though, real quick, and then we'll go back to Rishi Sunak and then the UK in general, because she's the prime minister for however long, although there's already speculation when this general election is going to be. Mm. Who is she? She has a really interesting background. Her parents was a, a college professor and a nurse. So, you know. Upper middle class, middle class, kind of an upbringing. She also lived in Scotland briefly as a child, so she's got some experience around the UK. I'm sure uh, Nicholas Sturgeon will just love that. Um, sorry, in joke. Um, <laughs> but she's been a, even though she's relatively young, she's been in politics most of her career. She has mm-hmm. that kind of under the radar kind of political career where she just kind of kept climbing the ladder. And then, yeah. you know, it's the old literary thing. Gradually, then suddenly, all of a sudden, this election comes. It's like, oh, Liz Truss is the favorite. And you can't, she's at the bottom of all those polls, like you said, but all the people that really knew what they're talking about is like, Liz Truss is going to win this, even when she was at the bottom of the polling because of the way, the per- how does her biography and her path to the premiership really set her up going forward? That piece of it, before we get into the politics and the ideology and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, her as a person, where she came from, how she got here. What should we take from that, especially as an audience from afar that's just kind of learning it through the media?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you really quite well laid out there, she sort of started her life in Leeds. And then actually, as you said, which I didn't actually know, went and had grown up in Scotland for a bit. So she does have quite a good um, view of the UK as the whole on a whole. Sorry. Um, But what I think is important here is that she is rather understated and she has been in politics for a very long time doing things under the radar. She's not like Boris Johnson in that way. She doesn't have to showboat all the time or, you know, go out and sort of have flashy parties or be flashy and in front of the media all the time. She's got her own persona in that sense. And actually, just just a moment ago at 4pm, we saw her speech outside her first speech as prime minister Um, and it gave off a rather more somber and serious tone um, uh, that I think will be sort of the who she is going forward she's not going to be the very flowery languaged Boris or the very overt Boris or making jokes all the time she is more serious and I think a lot of that clearly does come from her background and her past political history where she's just sort of got the job done and kept going forward. For example, like when she was international trade sec and we had just left Brexit and we needed all these trade deals done and got over the line in order to sort of move on to the next step and keep pushing forward with this huge swathe of uh, new issues and policies we had to come up with because of Brexit. Um, But she got those done and she got those done in a way that I think was professional rather than look at me, look how amazing I am.
4: Yeah, I, I will miss Boris busting out classical Greek and the original Greek from time to time. That was one of the more fun things he did. My my dad was a Greekophile, so I'm used to that. Um, one piece, something you just mentioned, though, also goes to her background. She wasn't always a conservative. She actually was a liberal Democrat to start out with. She switched mm-hmm. over in 96. Then when she stood for election in the early 2000s, she went with the Tory party. I think some of that, some people will call it pragmatism. Some of it will call it whatever they want to call it. Somebody who has been on the other side, she obviously understands it and has a unique viewpoint from it. Is that part of the unsplashiness? She knows she's got headwinds here. She knows she's got a very steep hill to climb here. She has a reinvigorated labor party to deal with. She's got a lot against her, but she's not somebody that's just a system person that just came up in one ideology. She's worked through this in her own head. Is that where some of this comes through, where she's going to have to try to reach out? She's actually got an ability to do it because she used to speak those words and those buzzwords in that language.
2: It's very interesting that you say that. It was actually one of her sort of most fierce criticisms against her when she was first entering this leadership was that she has once been um, a Lib Dem. And actually, I'm not 100% sure about that, but yeah, she's definitely been a Lib Dem. um, And that was sort of a criticism. However, I think, like you say, that sort of, I don't know, she was a Lib Dem when she was at university, for example, and people's opinions change, their lives impact how their opinions change. And I think that just shows that she, in her own mind, grew up. And like you say, she worked through her own ideas to get to that own point on her own, rather than, I don't know, being influenced by someone's parents or being influenced by the friends that you surround yourself with kind of thing. She got to the point and the viewpoint that she's decided on on her own by working through where she decided that her opinions landed and i think in many ways that makes it more powerful that she she really does know where she lands ideologically now because she's she's been through it all um and going back to what you said in her, her um fight against labor i think one of the biggest things we've seen over the last few months really not only a few weeks is that the Conservatives' own worst enemy is the Conservatives. Labour, in my mind, have been entirely ineffectual in these past few months, from back when Boris was Prime Minister, purely because they seem to have been unable to get ahead. They are ahead in the polls at the moment, technically, but they've been handed scandal after scandal, criticism after criticism, chaos after chaos on a plate by the Conservatives, and they've been entirely unable to get ahead, get on top of that, and prove themselves this country that they should lead. Realistically right now, they should be miles ahead of the Conservative Party in terms of proving to the country that they can lead us. And yet they've been sort of unable to do that.
4: Yeah, but what they do have Letis Bromsky joining us is a head start because of this process, because it was drug out, because we kind of knew the, especially the last few weeks, you could tell the way Rishi Sunak carried, since the debates really when they went to the Hastings, you kind of knew where this was going. They've had it's been one way traffic in the media because, you know, Liz Truss is getting the job, but she doesn't have the job. So they can attack her as if she has the job, but she can't attack back because she doesn't have the job yet. So this has been one way media traffic. She has taken a lot of slings and arrows, some Mm fair, some unwise. That's part of the gig. What have we seen in the last few weeks? Because it's it's all been one way. It's all criticism right now because she can't do anything to really respond back other than talk. No. How has that affected things? Because that's just the reality of the media environment and the political environment until she is now in office, which happens today. Now she gets to respond. Yeah. She starts in a hole, yeah? Is
2: that fair to say? well it's definitely fair to say one thing that should be noted is the government's actually been in recess for the past sort of month, so there haven't been any um like prime minister's questions for example this wednesday will be her first prime minister's questions um in front of Keir starmer and it will be a very very interesting moment to see how she handles it, how he handles it as well, whether he can really, you know, land some serious blows to the Conservative Party and whether she'll be very good at that at all. I mean, Boris, to be honest, I would say did incredibly well in the Prime Minister's questions debating. That was sort of his, his sort of uh, highest quality in many ways. Whereas Liz Truss, we already know she's not a not a public speaker, and I'm not sure, I'm not convinced really that she's going to be a great debater. Um, but the past few weeks, the media certainly have been getting very frustrated at the fact that, which is unfair to me, that they are unable to say what their policy is or what their plans have been, um, or what they're going to be putting forward in the future to help with energy and taxes and housing and crime and all these different things but this next week she said that she will be putting out her plan Um, and so this next week is going to be absolutely fascinating with all the new things that will be coming out plans coming out it's going to be a real a real feast in many ways.
4: Yeah, I won't miss it because they, they brought Sky News's app does a live. I never miss Prime Minister Questions because it's the first thing in the morning here. I listen to it with my kids going to school. It's kind of a tradition. You mentioned it. This is always going to be the comparison. As a woman Prime Minister, she's going to mm. get compared to Theresa May. And, of course, Margaret Thatcher, fair, unfair, doesn't matter, especially Prime Minister Questions. Um, Theresa May did very well at it. Margaret Thatcher is legendary at it. Yeah. She's not that style, though, even though Theresa was more um, – plutocratic, if that's a word, but she was very good at it. Of course, she had Jeremy Corbyn to work off of. She does get Keir Starmer, who's not exactly setting the world on fire. But the comparison, that comparison isn't going to hold up in her style when it comes to things like PMQ, when it comes to things like public speaking. What Mm. should she concentrate on style-wise? Because let's be honest, politics is style. You have to speak. You have to perform on TV. What do you think she should focus on when it comes to things like Wednesday morning? And it's just her and the dispatch box. And a whole lot of howling labor sitting across from her and some folks, frankly, behind her that she doesn't know whether she can really trust yet or not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting. Um, I think, well, going forward for the Wednesdays, it's going to be very important that she has solid proof points that she's getting things done or that she's moving the dial in some way and that's really the only thing that's going to hold off the fire depending on how sort of aggressive Keir Starmer is towards her. If we go back to sort of the comparisons with Margaret Thatcher which have been a sort of phenomenon here, they've been everywhere from what she wears, dresses, how she talks, how she acts. Personally from my opinion I find that a bit infuriating. Although Margaret Thatcher, incredible woman in her own rights for a lot of what she's done, you know, she's she's in the history books as being this amazing prime minister. Um, she was a prime minister 40 years ago. Um, and that to me is something that she was presiding over entirely different times with different issues. I mean, Margaret Thatcher had the issues of the unions on her hands and that was the greatest issue of that time. Whereas nowadays, the unions, they really don't hold that much power. Um, And there there are other things that are just, we now rely so much more on technology in a digital world, whereas in the 1980s, those just weren't as prevalent as they are today. So although I understand in terms of maybe policy or economics or how some people want to think of it, it's important. I think we need to refrain from looking back too much um, and comparing too much because these are entirely different times.
4: Yeah, I agree. Letis us We're going to continue to talk about um, Liz Truss's elevation to the premiership. She is now the prime minister of the UK. She has met with the queen. She has stood in front of the famous black door at number 10. It's all official. She's going to continue to break it down for us, including international reaction and the politics of that. Her vanquished foes on her own side and her opponents in the Labour Party. More with Letis us right after this. Her tale continues. Welcome back to her Tell. We're continuing to talk about Liz Truss, the new uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Our friend over yonder, Lettus Bromofsky, is back helping us break it all down. Uh, let's start with The Vanquished here, Honor the Fallen, as that crazy uh, Hunger Games movie my kids keep watching <laughs> over and over and over and over again. Uh, Rishi Sunak, where does he go from here? I know he resigned his post, which was kind of expected. A little bit mm-hmm. of chilliness between the two of them at the announcement, which... You can make more or less of it. I don't know. I don't think it was overly contentious by British standards. We've seen a whole lot worse, but it wasn't overly friendly either. Where, Where do we put all this, do you think?
2: I think that there won't be a position for him in the main cabinet. Um, I mean, in the cabinet, sorry. Um, I don't believe that he himself would want that position going forward. Um, although throughout this entire campaign, they've been talking about how they'll unite behind it and all of these different things, and they're one party. And in, in many respects, that's right. All their All their viewpoints, they agree on far more things than they disagree on. I think that for him now... He, he wouldn't accept a position. There was a lot of talk um, up until today that he might be offered health secretary because he was obviously not going to be offered um, chancellor of the Exchequer, considering a lot of the campaign was built around their differences on economic opinions. Um, and, but health secretary, however, that has today gone to Theresa Coffey, who... What we're seeing with Liz's new cabinet, again, one of the criticisms that is coming out of this is that she's appointing a group of people who are largely inexperienced and unheard of um, outside of the Westminster bubble, I should say. So Teresa Coffey, who today the first appointee of um, Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary has risen from her position as uh, Secretary for the Work and Pensions, um, and prior to this she'd held a few roles in the Whip's Office, to now being pretty much at the centre of government, holding the second most powerful position in this country and Health Secretary, which is in and of its own right a huge role uh, within the Cabinet. Um, And it's been a significant rise for her. There have also been other people like James Cleverly, who's predicted to be the foreign secretary. Um, but again, that's a name that people haven't really heard of before. Um, and this sort of goes on and on. The only one that she has, or supposedly, this is all speculative, except for Theresa right now, um, is that Kwasi Kwarteng will be the new chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and he has previously been secretary for business. Um, and it is believed that he's done a very great job there, to be honest. He also runs COP. Um, And he's been in charge of all of that. Um, But again, it's this what we'll be seeing actually right now, probably while while we're discussing this. But people will be going into um, that black door, into number 10, and they'll be being appointed these positions. Um, And so really, that will be her first major step as prime minister to see who who's going to get these roles and what sort of future that means we'll be looking at.
4: Yeah. And Rishi Sunanak, he's a young guy. He's in his early 40s. He's very ambitious. He's really smart. He sees what everybody else is seeing. Everybody is pronouncing and is like, look, there's going to be a general election sooner rather than later. He mm-hmm. probably just wants to stay clear of whatever happens and then he wants to be the next guy up. Is that kind of what everybody's seeing here is he's just going to step yeah. aside, sit on his back bench, let it fall where his may, and then he'll come in mm-hmm. and see what happens next and be the next guy up.
2: Yeah, there's there's so much truth to that in many ways, which almost seems unfair, but Liz Not even a criticism. I
4: mean, that's just kind of, you know, that's the road in front no, of him. I don't completely. really blame and him, but for, that's what it is.
2: No, no, it, uh, completely. And for her to even be seen in history as good, she's almost going to have to be exceptionally great in many ways. And although we say she's got two years for the next general election or 18 months or whatever, realistically, she's actually only got about... I would say two months until we're in the depths of this winter energy crisis that we're going to be in. And if she fails to meet the needs of the people then and fails to sort of get a solid plan in place that really will support people and not just maybe blanket uh, giving money out or blanket spending, but a real solid plan that will help people through this winter, then she might have a chance going forward. But if she doesn't do that, I think she's going to be out in the cold. Pardon the pun.
4: Well, it's not a pun because the number one cri- we've talked about it with you, our other UK friends. We just talked about it with our German friends last week. Cost of living and energy is the is the overriding issues right now. And in the yeah. UK, winter's coming and it's looking bad. It's not looking good for the British economy right now. It's not looking good for the especially the working and middle class and down economies. The cost of living is high. Fuel prices are looking to be high. This is going to be a rough winter politically and physically in the yeah. UK. What what is she, I know she came out with a big energy plan right off the jump but beyond mm-hmm. just a plan how does she sell a hard winter because it's going to be hard no matter what she does let's just be honest here how well, does like, she how does she sell that to people just kind of we just got to stick through a tough winter you're the new yeah. guy and things go bad you get the blame she knows this what's her pitch
2: well, that was, that was a lot of what we heard in her speech just now, which was much more sombre and serious. And it, the sort of overriding quote that's come out of that is, um, we're going to ride through this storm together. And she's been very much corralling this idea of togetherness. But you're right, the biggest shock for households this winter is, is going to be these sort of crippling increases in gas and electricity bills. We're going to see our energy price cap rise Eighty percent from about two thousand pounds to about three thousand six hundred pounds um, in october um, and this is again predicted to jump to about five thousand four hundred pounds in two thousand twenty three in january two thousand twenty three which is is phenomenal i mean even not we 're not just talking about you know the lowest in society the poorest in society at this we 're talking about a huge chunk of people in society who will genuinely be unable to pay these bills. What she has been coming out and saying is promising that um, she, well, not promising just yet, but saying that she will freeze um, the cap on gas and electricity bills at about 2,500. So this is still an increase from what it is at the moment, uh, but she'll put this freeze on for the next two winters, um, and it will uh, allow, I think, about, I can't remember exactly, sorry, but this that's meant to help a you know a higher proportion of people with this. But again it's going to create a cost of about 90 billion which will be supposedly funded by government loans and again it's adding to the more and more debt and the criticism at the moment is this is simply kicking the can down the road for the next generation to deal with um but she she does have to prove herself and she is in some ways going to have to restructure The energy market that we have because of the pressure that we've seen over the last year from Russia, um, particularly in Europe, more than in the UK specifically. But that that gas pressure that we're being put under, it's 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 coming to a head and it's going to be a very, very tough, tough winter here.
4: Okay, she can't just get by on the cost of living stuff, although that'll be the dominant issue. Mm. You got to juggle balls. And she's got some big ones. Northern Ireland's a mess. There's a migrant crisis. There's labor issues. We've got wide-ranging strikes through the UK in the transportation sector right now. Ukraine's not going to be going anyway, and the European pressure is going to be immense in the winter for the same reason the cost of living is going to be a problem in the winter in the UK. What of those is something that she better get on real, real fast? Who's her first foreign phone call on dealing with some of that? Is it dealing with, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland? Is it there's a lot of trouble with the French right now in the migrant crisis in the channel does she call Olaf Schultz in the polls and be like we got to do something in Ukraine who's her first phone call do you think here
2: well we know what she's already said is that she's very um, adverse to Chinese expansionism that's one of our main points at the moment she has always said that we need to be very careful tread very carefully with them going forward but I think for now although that's she's very publicly against a lot of that and um, Chinese government uh, Chinese companies sorry coming into the UK I think for now the priority will remain the war in Ukraine um, she's always been very supportive of of UK helping fund and support and send defense to um, the Ukraine and things like that I think that'll be very high on her list of showing that she maintained support we know that Boris was incredibly popular figure um, in Kiev and were most people in Ukraine were so shocked when uh, it was said that Boris would no longer be the leader of the United Kingdom. So showing Ukraine that we will still stand and we will still support them, I think is going to be top of her list. What I think will be an even bigger priority at the moment is dealing with this NHS backlog that we're having and issues within the NHS. Because I think that's something that the people of the UK will be very, very keen to see sorted out. And although many prime ministers have been saying this for many years kind of thing, the, the issues that we've had that are hanging over us because of COVID are becoming unmanageable. We've had people who've been sort of left to die because they've had heart attacks or strokes and ambulances have taken hours and hours to come to them when realistically they should, they should be there instantly. You know, our 911 system is, is falling apart. We've got one in 10 um, GP consultants who are expected to retire in the next 18 months and we haven't got the the inflow of younger generations to support them. Um, actually, just yesterday, Truss was told that she had 10 days to address NHS nurses pay or they would go on strike. So this, this, she seems to be fighting a battle on every front at this point.
4: Yeah, welcome to number 10. Not an easy yeah. job as anybody that's ever been in that building will tell you. Um, you mentioned it real briefly though. So just to touch on it, kind of put a bow on this whole thing. Mm. Just pronosticated. I know it's a guess, but this whole thing's going to come down to when this next general election is. You mentioned it. She's really only got a couple of months to really get her stamp on this thing. If it's an 18 to two years out, that would make her, and let's just say she doesn't survive it. That would make her the shortest reigning prime minister of the modern era. <laughs> that's, that's the hill she's looking at climbing historically. Yeah. She's got, let's just be honest here. She's got, no matter what your politics are, She's got a whole lot against her just right from the go here, doesn't she?
2: Yeah, uh, she, she's got so much. It's almost it's almost un unclimbable in many ways. But as you say, the election, it like the maximum it can really be at this point will be in two years. But they're going to want to put their best foot forward when they call it. So I don't believe it's going to be in two years. I imagine that they'll have to call it as soon as sort of, you know, something goes right, something's in their favour, perhaps they overtake Labour for the first time in the polls, perhaps she does incredibly well in this winter coming up, and they will call it as soon as they have a slight glimmer of hope that it's swinging in their favour because two years is no time really at all, especially in the world of politics, to get things through and really change things out there. And with recession predicted until 2025, you know, we, we, she's going to have such a struggle even getting anything over the line. So she's got to be putting her best foot forward for everything really now.
4: Never a dull moment with our friends over in the UK. Let us, Bromowski, love having you on. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back, which we're going to do because you're outstanding and we love getting your insight on these sort of things. Let folks know where they can follow you till we get you on Hertel again.
2: Thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at L Bromosky, which is B-R-O-M-O-V-S-K-Y.
4: And we'll link to all her current media hits on this stuff and we'll have you back real soon. Liz, thank you so much for the time, my friend.
2: Thank you so much.
4: Yes, ma'am. favorites we lean on her for sound legal advice but she is not your lawyer so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you uh senior editor at ordinary-times.com a member of the bar in good standing she's a lawyer she's smarter than us we're going to have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old m carpenter back on her tell how are you ma'am
3: i'm very well andrew thank you how are you
4: i'm just having a habeas kind of day how about you (laughs) i've had better uh, okay, so the Supreme Court came out with this ruling. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter, uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like, we've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, "What is this?" I was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling, uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, it, it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately and, and this one may have <laughs> put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite quite a bit over the years and you know, argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And uh, this, this makes that very difficult to, to continue.
4: Okay, what is it about this case? Because and by the way, this was progressive lawyers. This was uh, conservative lawyers. Like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, It was a six three ruling. (laughs) Just where do you even want to start with this? Because it's complicated. You basically have two guys that are on death row out in Arizona. This is not a conviction hearing. This is a hearing about their representation. Walk us through it kind of slowly so we're not know what we're dealing with before they get to the Supreme Court. Why is this kind of a hearing important? Explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here.
3: Okay. Uh, Yeah, so... Let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer, doesn't investigate your case, crucial facts that could show your innocence, they're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made, you're convicted, you go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the, you know, the appeal stage right after trial, and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And then, and now you are in what they call the post conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing, maybe to a lay person, because you probably think of conviction is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage and most state courts allow you to file a, a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to to raise. Um, So you file for your post-conviction relief in state court and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those and, and you're you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally, you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court and that's called procedural default. But back in 2011 in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this and that's the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And that makes sense. If your post-conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but but we're not going to let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I, I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts won't let you put any evidence on So So what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer at trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So but they rely, the court is relying on USC 2254 E2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub. There is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, So, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if if they mess up the court says that's attributed to you. It's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you, um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, it's held against you, even though it was your lawyer's mistake. That's not a new concept. But there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel. So what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief, then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel, even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not ineffective counsel constitutionally. So that's that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating to me, anyway? What what this opinion is has been so inflammatory. There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in 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 any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of, almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, These are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases. And they, are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal The criminal law, the system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with, that's, that's number one. That's just inflammatory. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this. And In it, he he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because of failing to raise an issue and we're gonna let that happen but we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to. But we have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven, and this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are. They don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is is necessary. And you know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's, that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line, uh, it never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have Um, raise this. What is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel? And and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work, not so much with, you know, public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of there are other attorneys that take these cases um and that are not qualified to do it and they not they're, they mean well but it happens there is unfortunately some bad lawyering that goes on here and you know you, you might face death for that and the fact that you know you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer your educated lawyer when you may not have much education yourself your lawyer makes a mistake and they say well that's your fault you know that, and that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that—that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry, and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion.
4: I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez, but that's fine. That's what we bring her on for. Um, there. Uh, We're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez, Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing, even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on tell right after this. Johnson uh, joined by our legal expert m carpenter she's a frequent contributor to this program uh, and she is the senior editor at ordinary-times.com you can catch her writing there um, let's get to some basics here because this case the supreme court case is about representation how big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now you've been a prosecutor um, you've done uh, like all attorneys have to do you've done uh work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work how big a problem is this because when we start talking about things like bail reform we start talking about things like pre-trial confinement we start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals a lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation don't they
3: yeah um, you know it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court um, they're, they're, the consequences are not so dire, the stakes are not so high, um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, uh, there needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases. And the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and, and uh, very well versed in these cases, and they're going to do a great job. Even the best lawyer makes mistakes, okay? And so even the best lawyer in a trial could lead to a valid, ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent, although that is definitely the case at times. Um, It's just there's so many little things, mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that, you know, listen, there's all this evidence out there. My lawyer didn't even bring it up. And when you have, in like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those, those avenues? And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases. When you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state. The judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know? And that's that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system.
4: How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff? could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works. I know there's not enough lawyers to go around um, and especially not enough good lawyers. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know, there's the really good and then there's the really bad and there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad, right? It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, Is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in, in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. There seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming onto what we can do about any of it.
3: Right. And public defenders, especially in the lower level than trial courts, their their caseloads are humongous. And I've seen um, experienced uh, very competent public defender, at least one I know of in, in my area, who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions or, and that was not purposeful or inten- or an intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, inexcusable. And, you know, he, he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that. And he should have, um, but when you overload lawyers with cases like this, that's, what's going to happen. And when you, um, you know, your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail, um, you know, that impedes their ability to contact you. It impedes your ability. You can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients. So it impacts, you know, how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare. Um, it, It definitely clogs up the system. So, I don't think I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue and into some higher level cases, depending on the facts of the case and, and what they're actually charged with. Now, do I do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where there uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail? Probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there there are things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which in turn would help the clients.
4: So, okay, it is the loudest story in news and culture and politics. I suspect it will be this way probably for at least a month or so, if not longer. Let's go to one of our legal experts to break it down for us. He's returning to the show. One of our real good friends, Bert Lyko, attorney extraordinaire out in the Portland area. He's also a longtime OG at Ordinary-Times.com. He has one of them fancy emeritus titles, which means he does it when he wants to, and I'm very jealous of him for that. My friend, how are you today?
7: Andrew, I am uh, I am beside myself with what has happened at the Supreme Court, but very, very thrilled that you have invited me on your show to talk about
4: it. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Okay. When I talked about this on the show uh, yesterday, I was basically reading, you sent it to me as an email, and then we turned it into an article because that's how we do things at Ordinary Dash Times on the fly sometimes. Um, you did a quick little write-up of it. Let's start with some nomenclature, though, because I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page because we are dealing... We're dealing with one of the loudest cultural things of our lifetime. Uh, I put it this way on the radio this morning. This really is um, the convergence of the last 30 years of the culture wars. This is what everybody's been building for. This is what everybody's kind of been gearing up for. This This is going to be loud like something we've never seen before. But we're dealing with black and white law here. So let's get our nomenclature right. Roe v. Wade, everybody knows that that's the abortion law. What does and doesn't Roe v. Wade do and... In addition to that, because it's going to get lumped in here, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which you you got to have them together to understand the full picture here. Just nomenclature rods real quick. Just kind of overview those four so we know what we're talking about.
7: All right. Um, you can spend uh, about three weeks on this in a con law class in law school. So I can get deep, deep, deep into the weeds if you like. Um, I would start uh, the, the case history uh, with... Um, I'd start it with Griswold versus Connecticut. That's a 1967, I think, case from uh, from Connecticut. Obviously, dealing with access to contraception, and that case decided that uh, individuals have a fundamental right to have access to contraception uh, based on this notion of a right to privacy. Now, you will search the Constitution of the United States in vain for the word privacy. Uh, it's not there. Griswold used uh, what's called penumbral reasoning, saying that there are certain things that exist within the scope of different enumerated constitutional rights, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And all of these enumerated rights have been interpreted to protect certain kinds of privacy. So, uh, the idea didn't originate in the Griswold case. It goes all the way back. Uh, the The earliest formal discussion of it goes to a law review article in Yale Law Review by Louis Brandeis in 1890. So we're not talking about something that the Griswold court made up out of whole cloth. Uh, but it was the first time it really got applied, at least in a very explosive sort of way in that Griswold case. With me so far.
4: Yeah, I'm with you so far. And real quick, since you brought it up, there has been this all over social media today that uh, Roe v. Wade was essentially a privacy case. That's an oversimplification, even though the basis in the Griswold law was privacy. That's an oversimplification of what Roe v. Wade does as you go on to further explain it, right?
7: Right. Um, It's important to understand that that Griswold case took this idea that Louis Brandeis had about a privacy right being one of the unenumerated rights and put that into law because the Roe court took a look at, at the circumstances of that case, a direct challenge to a Texas law criminalizing abortions and said, privacy is one of the reasons why uh, we can't have a law criminalizing abortions. That's not consistent with the constitution because among other things The Constitution protects the right to privacy. Getting an abortion is a very private sort of decision, one of the most intimate private decisions a person could make. So that is one of the foundations that is mentioned in the Roe case. The Roe case also goes directly to the Ninth Amendment and says you have a right to an abortion that you can trace just to the Ninth Amendment that says there are unenumerated rights. And the Ninth provides one of those. It didn't do a real good job of articulating what that right is. And this is where the Roe case has got a lot of criticism. It's a little foggy on the textual foundation for what becomes a, a limited right to an abortion. So uh, the second thing to understand about Roe is it does not provide an unlimited right to an abortion. Roe creates a, sort of a sliding scale as a pregnancy advances. So in, it, it decides, and there's no real good legal precedent for it. Uh, it just says that you have uh, a pregnancy divided into three trimesters. Uh, the first one third of the pregnancy, the second one third, the last one third. And as you advance through the pregnancy, the state's interest in regulating that abortion, regulating potentially up to the point of criminalizing it, uh, will, will grow. So in the first trimester, the state has a very minimal interest as compared to the individual's autonomy in deciding whether or not to have that abortion. And then by the time you get to the third trimester, the state's interest has grown powerful enough that it can override the individual's decision. And the third concept that comes out of Roe that becomes important when we get to Casey 20 years after that uh, is this idea of viability. And viability gets to be really the turning point, both in Roe and especially in cases that come later. Viability is defined as the point that a fetus can survive on its own outside the womb. The case does not say what degree of technological assistance is necessary for the fetus to survive outside the womb. And that's another reason that you could criticize the reasoning in the row case as medical technology improves over time from 1973, when Rose handed down to today, um, a prematurely born baby can survive a lot longer because we have better technology right now and, and can be can survive, uh, more and more prematurely, I should say. So, um, that's that's the basic idea of Roe—that you have a um, a sliding scale of the state's interests over time, coming to be uh, coming to overrule an individual's interests. And there, there's a ve- a whole theoretical framework uh, that I have, a number of other lawyers have that uh, that we can we can go into and that's uh, um, a real interesting rabbit hole but that's the core ideas of Roe. there's other ideas too actually but we don't need to get into them today
4: how hard is it because here's kind of the we we know the cultural side of this how hard is it though when you're talking about the case law and you laid out a little bit of you know case law built on case law it's a it's a building thing When you're dealing with this kind of case law where you're also trying to deal with a medical certainty and a medical certainty that has a very uh, debatable point like viability. We've already talked about, you know, uh, we normally now uh, 20 week fetuses are viable outside the womb, these sort of things. Isn't there just an inherent problem in trying to do case law with something that even the medical folks can't really tell you a good answer on? And we're trying to give a definitive answer on. Is it too much to say that this is one of those points of law where the law is just inadequate to try to explain this and there, there's just always going to be a tension here no matter what you do?
7: There, there will always be tension about this um, because this is such a morally fraught issue. And people of very, very good faith and very good morality are always going to disagree about this. That will never, ever change. It has never, ever changed since thousands of years ago, when abortions were uh, first done with different kinds of uh, chemical inducements, uh, whether that was something that should be done or shouldn't uh, ancient peoples discussed and debated amongst themselves, uh, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we will resolve as difficult an issue as this in uh, particularly in these modern times.
4: what um before we get into the actual what Alito is writing on this thing though compare this to like and i know it's not a perfect match but like europe there's a pretty set standard mostly across most of the developed countries in europe Um, they're usually somewhere in that 15 to 20 week range we know the texas laws the 15 week range which was kind of designed to go at the court we didn't get there because this came down first is is the week do we get lost in the weeds on the weeks and the viability part of this or is that really essential to the case law of how this is going to play out going forward
7: After we get the Dobbs decision handed down, uh, which we can reasonably suspect is gonna look a lot like that leaked opinion that that got put out on Monday, um, viability isn't really going to matter as much at the federal level. And it's gonna be more a question of political choices that get made on a state by state basis. Um, I'm sure we're gonna circle back around to that. Uh, Some states may choose viability as a point, uh, some states may choose to define viability at 28 weeks, 24 weeks, 20 weeks, um, and that's going to be based on, I would like to say it would be based on an assessment of the medical resources that are available in that state, but the, the practical answer is it's going to be based on uh, pretty much raw politics.
4: Bert Laico, attorney, our good friend, uh, writer at Ordinary-Times.com, he's already wrote about this. Uh, we're talking about the Alito brief the opinion uh that some folks are calling it a leak i don't believe in leaks i don't think anything's ever a leak i think this was leaked on purpose uh we're going to get into the actual brief right after we take a quick break we're going to get into what alito wrote what it means what it means going forward and uh he's going to explain it to us like we're five because i don't understand all this stuff and he's really really good with this sort of things. burt Lyko continues with us on one of the loudest topics we probably will ever cover unfortunately as her tell continues Uh, We're back with our friend, Bert Lyko. Okay, we have some news now. Uh, You alluded to it. Chief Justice Roberts has issued a rare statement because I don't know how else he was going to do it, but it is rare for the Chief Justice to comment on uh, cases before they come out on opinions. He says this is a legitimate brief. He says it is, uh, or I keep saying brief, it's opinion. He says it's a legitimate opinion. Uh, It is an early opinion. We all know that from the big first draft stamped on the top of it, if you actually bothered to read it at ordinary-times.com and other places like you and I did. Uh, But it's hard to imagine this is going to be very markedly different than what is going to come out in June or whenever they get out to this brief. What's the first thing that jumped out at you about this? Was it that Alito wrote it or was it
7: how Alito wrote it? Uh, The first thing that jumped out about it to me was that I was reading it at all. The last time that I'm aware of in history that an opinion has been leaked out of the Supreme Court to anyone uh, was uh, what the year would have been, I think, 1859, when it's likely the leaker was Chief Justice Roger Taney, who told President James Buchanan what the Dred Scott decision was going to be. And Buchanan went and spilled the beans to the public. Uh, talking to a newspaper saying that the Supreme Court was going to resolve the issue of slavery in the uh, federal territories very, very soon, and it would be a final resolution, and there'd be no need to worry about that for the election. Um, students of history will recall that this um, this worked out rather poorly. Very poorly
4: and very bloodily uh, by the end, of course. Let, let's do nomenclature one more time, though. You're talking about a leak, a breach of trust was the terminology chief justice. This isn't like uh, Justice Kennedy had somewhat of a reputation for talking out of school, out at parties and out on the town, and he would talk about things like that's not what we're talking about here. This is an actual document from the court. This is a bigger deal than just gossip or somebody mentioning something or, or a Kennedy or somebody like that talking out of school at a party or something like this. How big a deal is this that this is one of the draft copies that was going around? The justices pass these back and forth. They go through many rounds of this. We know this. How big a deal is that? Is it the breach of trust that the chief justice called it?
7: So um, let's bookmark going back to to the brief being circulated, because I think that's important to understand if you're going to engage in Supreme Court criminology. But um, how big a, a breach of trust is this? Um, it is an earthquake, uh, an earth-shattering violation of Supreme Court norms. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was still alive, was, uh, was famous for, among other things, saying that if someone in the media is trying to tell you that they know what the Supreme Court's going to do, you really need to Uh, distrust that. Uh, And and her phrase was uh, something like, uh, people who say they know what the court is going to do don't know what they're talking about, and people who know what the court's going to do don't talk about it. That's as strong a social norm as um, not speaking up when the minister says, is there anyone here who has any objection to this marriage? No one stands up and says, yes, I object to this marriage. You don't do that. Uh, This is as strong a social norm on Supreme Court as, um, you know, kissing your sister. You, you, You just don't do it.
4: Okay, one of our favorites. She is the senior editor for Ordinary Times.com. She is an attorney. Uh, she is a lot of things in the writing community, and people on Twitter mostly like her. Our friend, Tim Carpenter, is joining us <laughs> once again. How are you, ma'am?
3: I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
4: Uh, how are the HIPAA wars?
3: <laughs> That's a very angry HIPAA. You gotta be careful.
4: <laughs> for those of you not paying attention, uh since she is a lawyer and does uh, healthcare related things hipaa is one of her um i don't know what you want to call it uh things of the moment she pays high attention to so if you mess it up on twitter you're likely to get a tweet about it but uh today we're going to talk a little lawyer ease you are a lawyer one of them law splainer type people what do you make of the aba talking about getting rid of the lsat now we've heard this in the news a lot lately Uh, There was some debate, I thought, pretty unfairly um, during the Supreme Court nominations about uh, LSAT scores. You wrote a piece to Ordinary Times that pretty much dispelled that. However, uh, if we're going to get rid of something, we have to discuss what its actual use is. So let's just start there with the nomenclature. What is the LSAT? What's it supposed to be? And what is it being used as that folks want it reformed?
3: The LSAT is the law school admissions test. And just to be clear, what the ABA is doing is they are not, quote, getting rid of the LSAT. The LSAT is still existing. What, what it is, is there the rule um, that the ABA used to have for accredited law schools was that they were required to require an entrance exam, an LSAT or other um, some some used GREs, but they what they have done is they've said that they are no longer requiring accredited law schools to require an entrance exam at all. They still can. And I suspect a lot of schools probably will continue to do so for a variety of reasons. But the LSAT is a standardized test like a, like the GRE or the MCAT, which is the medical school equivalent. And it is a, um, an aptitude test to, that's designed, whether it does it accurately or well, I don't can't speak to that, but it is designed to determine whether or not uh, one per, a person's reasoning skills, their logic skills, their... Um, whether they actually have a, a good chance of success in law school based on how they think, um, how they solve problems, their comprehension, things like that. So it's not a test about what do you know about the law. You don't know you, you know, theoretically know nothing about the law before you have actually gone to law school. So there are no legal questions on the LSAT. So that's what it is. And the intention of it is to as a measure, a metric to help law schools accept students who they believe have a chance of success.
4: We went, now we went over this when we did the Supreme Court nomination hearings for uh, soon to be Justice uh, Jackson here shortly. Uh, Just to tee it up though, for the trivia buffs out there, how many law questions are on the LSAT?
3: Zero. There are no legal questions on the LSAT. You are not presupposed to have any legal knowledge before you sit for that exam. You have not been to law school yet. They don't expect you to know the law.
4: So, just for the people that will never have the great pleasure of taking an LSAT, uh, I'm not one of them because I actually took the thing just on a lark, just to see how I do on it. What it this isn't like a normal test. This isn't This isn't just fill in bubble fields. This isn't you know flashcards. Explain to people what is actually going on on this test because a lot of folks. Maybe they haven't done logic problems and things like this. Just kind of given a little bit of an explainer of what the test is actually like to take.
3: Uh, it's been a um, couple of decades since I took it, so I don't recall every section. Um, I know you know, there are, like any other standardized test, where you have to read a passage and answer questions about it. And um, But my favorite part is, as you mentioned, the logic puzzles. And, and those are the ones where you have a list of uh statements such as you know there are five people at a party and the person in red is sitting next to mary mary's not sitting next to the person in green the person in green is eating chicken and you know things like that and based on the information you're giving you are supposed to figure out where is everybody sitting what color are they wearing and what are they eating it sounds funny or um, confusing but and a lot of people really hate those puzzles i love them i have an app on my phone where i do them for fun um So that's one of the one of the sections. And then, again, I think the rest is mostly uh, reading comprehension and and the ability to write clearly.
4: And then Carpenter, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that actual law school experience. Uh, We're going to loan lead that into the student loan debate that's going on. Why law school is so expensive? Is that one of those prohibitive gatekeeping things? We've been talking about it and a little bit more. About the LSAT, our talk with our lawyer friend, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, and Carpenter continues on her tell right after this. tell our good friend M. Carpenter, one of our favorites, one of the smartest people we know, great writer, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you go check out all her works. She usually does Wednesday Ritz, but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job, so that's been a little spotty, but she did do one last week. Thank you very much for showing up to work. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about that law school experience for just a second. Law school has always been prohibitive. It's always been tough to get into it's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into and too expensive?
3: Um, too expensive. Yes. I think is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs or well, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um, and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt from my four years of undergrad. Uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was 16000 And I know it's probably a lot more than that now, obviously, in <laughs> 20 years that's gone up. Um, And I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about thirty thousand dollars a year Um, so it's not the same experience for everyone so uh yeah i think the cost is is a bit expensive. And depending on what you plan to do with your law degree, and if you want to be a public defender, which I've said on here before, in my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer. If you want to make a your career in public defense, you're, you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big you know, six-figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year that we're 1L year, is notoriously difficult, and and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. Uh, yes, it's a different, it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, takes some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your your intelligence without actually studying a lot. So a lot of people don't make it, don't come back at the end of your first year, your second year. A lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone. Um, unfortunately, that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back. So it, it's, um, it's a hard balance.
4: See, this is the thing people talk about lawyers, talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. This is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt. Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing in it.
3: I think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a a huge job. There's you know there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which you know your loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know the the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of, to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it, and, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school. I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um <laughs> I'm glad you Always do me.
4: it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So, yes, you, I'll agree with you.
3: You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense. is why I say that. Um, but I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's um, I don't I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt for their, their legal education. I certainly did not. Uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools. So, you know, it helped to help them get that high paying job and, and and it might work out for them. But you can go to a, um, a school a perfectly Perfectly good law school, like I did, WVU. It's not uh, Harvard, it's not Yale, but I'm doing just fine. And I know, you know, I have classmates who have, who went on to firms and and are doing very well. So I think that, you know, you don't have to go into six figure or or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it. You know, adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's Everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case. Certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, Do I wish that I had less debt? Yes. I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it. At the time, a lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year, you are not allowed to work outside of um, maybe perhaps a work study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not.
4: Welcome back to Hurtel. Tell. Okay, new fresh face. Always love having new folks to talk to on the show. This is going to be a good one. We're going to talk a little uh, economics, a little regulation. Who knows what else we might even get into because this guy studies Egyptian ancient history. Might have to ask him about that. Mike Viola, great of you to join us. Appreciate your time, sir.
0: Absolutely. Great to be here.
4: I appreciate it. Um, let's start with this. You work for Fee. We've had our friends on there before. Of course, we know our friends, Brad and Hannah and others from Fee. They do good work. What got you into wanting to study economics before we get into your piece? I always ask people like, why do you get into your fields of expertise? What is it about economics? Are you just, you know, a data geek for the numbers? Is it the people part of it? Tell me why you like economics so much, because I think people hear economics and then they have this reaction of like, oh, that's a bunch of math or, oh, that's just the unemployment numbers. It's such a broad field. Put a personal face on it on why you get into this stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I studied nothing numbers-related in college. I studied ancient Egyptian history and hieroglyphs, and I I double majored in poli-sci. So I was coming from a very uh, non-quantitative background, but um, as an undergrad, I went to the University of Chicago where Milton Friedman um, and a number of other economists had sort of built up the Chicago school and left a really lasting legacy there. And I would watch those Milton Friedman videos that would oftentimes be be promoted through our economics department. Um, And I was just absolutely floored away, A, by his absolute civility in dealing with hostile questions all the time, but B, the clarity with which he explained why free markets um, create the, the best circumstances for success of everyday people. And so that really moved me towards an economic liberty mindset. And it just became a bit of a a passion for me uh, since then, even though it was never really formally what i studied. After college, I worked in finance for five years, and sort of seeing just the amount of regulation that gets in the way of financials and the way that, you know, oftentimes, uh, regulatory capture is used to the benefit of big players from the financial system and holds things back. That really motivated me to, you know, make my next step more um, advocating in the economic space rather than um, playing behind the scenes with, you know, the types of people who manipulate those those economic systems. So that that was really my my path to working at V.
4: Now, here's the thing, though, because people think, well, ancient Egyptian history and economics of the modern time have nothing to do with each other. But. We, you know, one of our core values on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Economics explains the sequence. Those pyramids didn't just appear, although the alien people on History Channel keep trying to explain that to us. That is economics, though, how those pyramids got yeah. built and all the slave labor and how they use things and how they oversaw things. That is part of economics. Those don't seem like they go together, but, yeah, they kind of do because economics is uh, a human history story, so it's not that far-fetched, is it?
0: No, it's not. I mean, you know, the pyramids are a great example, right? It's sort of like Thomas Sowell's notion that there are no solutions, only trade offs, right? Like, building the pyramids were a massive trade off with the, the general populace being able to produce agriculturally for themselves or to produce new ideas, new technologies in, in farming and, and artisanship that were really the, the primary economy for normal people back then. Right, like there, there was a massive societal trade, trade-off to putting thirty years of the populace's labor towards building the king's tomb instead of, you know, towards their own ends, freely chosen as as to you know meeting their own needs. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge economic portion to that. Um, A lot of that early state formation in Egypt, like one of the very first states, organized states with writing that we know of, was totally around the elite class's ability to to use economics to their advantage, right? As opposed to sort of to the betterment of society. So uh, there's a huge connection there. It's just like, I, I think from the earliest civilizations today there's there's a straight line through everything.
4: Yeah, and the word we use in our modern vernacular and in, in the Western and English speaking word for those trade-offs is regulation because that's where the trade-off yeah. meets the populace. There's the balance. How much is government going to control? How much is the people in the free market going to control? And regulation is where the ratio adjusts between the two. That's a real basic, bare bones reader's digest version of it, but that's really what we're talking about, and that's why those two things go together, even though they sound like they're completely different, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, in, in that respect, I think general population who doesn't have the ability to follow politics all the time um, doesn't really understand that a lot of These so-called regulations around the idea of making your life easier actually makes doing business much harder for people all across the income spectrum. And that ultimately has an impact on their bottom lines and how they're able to live their lives and how they're able to support themselves.
4: We're not anarchists. So before we delve into because we're going to do some bashing of regulation here because it deserves it. But we also need regulation. It's important to have accountable government, and good regulation is part of that accountable government because you do need guardrails on the economy. Let's be fair here. um, Unfettered business usually gets to be as tyrannical as unfettered government does. There does need to be a ratio there. What's some of the guide rails that you look to for a healthy ratio when it comes to regulation versus the free market versus government power?
0: Yeah, well, so that's that's a really interesting notion, right? Like, where do regulations um help and where do they hurt on one hand i think oftentimes regulations that prevent any sort of business collusion or or preventing price fixing anti-monopolistic regulations i mean surely antitrust has been abused in recent years but fundamentally the idea is that we need to be promoting competition and in the rare cases where regulation actually preserve competition i absolutely think that that should factor into the conversation but then you also have the question of regulatory capture, right? Oftentimes regulations are in fact benefiting the biggest players in, in the business world because competition can't occur. So there there's almost the test of like, is ultimately is a regulation pro-competition or anti-competition? And that's probably the simplest test as to whether or not it's going to help um, the average person. Now there's also regulations around say, commons problems, right? Like. I do in fact think the government should be saying that you can't say dump toxic waste into our waterways right because um, while nobody may nobody in the private sector may own those waterways um, obviously people need to be protected from say their pollution or you know air pollution in ways that like privately owned businesses can obviously control for not wanting their own property ruined so those sorts of commons questions also need to, to come into play when you're thinking about regulation.
4: Yeah, and we've had real-world examples that we haven't really had in recent memory, or at least living memory for most people. Things like COVID were regulations that folks normally don't think of. of, And I'm not just talking about the vaccine stuff. I'm talking about when a business can and can't be closed for health reasons, when a school can be closed for health reasons. This brought it to the front, and what it really showed was two things. One is people don't think about how much regulation actually manages their lives. And two is, and you've talked about this a little bit, if you can get rid of a regulation for an emergency reason, did you really need it in the first place? Now, those are two separate conversations, but they're also running parallel. And every now and then they collide And things like COVID, things like economic hardship. That's when those things start crossing streams. And that's where we need to have the conversation of what good regulation is, because when crisis comes, that's when you really find out, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Right. Um, you know, it happened in a a lot of cities, a lot of states. Um, You know, I'm thinking about in Chicago, for example, which was where I lived during the the earlier part of the pandemic. Like, for example, permits to eat for outdoor dining were made much easier, right? Um, It's like, well, why was that so difficult to get previously? Um, You know, like, maybe there are reasons other than, you know, the harder to transmit virus outside. Maybe there are other reasons why you might want to eat outside from time to time or why restaurants would wanna provide that to their consumers. So it just, you, you have to wonder why there are so many restrictions on our day-to-day life when you, know, you can then just remove them um, when they become politically inconvenient. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you ever needed it in the first place.
4: You give some examples. We're going to work off your piece in Spectator. We're going to link to the whole piece, as always. Read the whole piece for yourself. There's also a lot of linked information in there. Read it for yourself. But just taking a couple of things out here, you have a couple of examples here. But big picture wise, we understand that President Biden is a Democrat. We understand that the basis of the Democrat Party and our friends that are more on the left, they like big government, they like more regulation. The Biden administration has put in a lot of regulations in the first two years of their administration, really the first 18 months as we're talking. This is expected with a Democratic president. How does this fall compared to previous presidents just on the numbers and what his overall policy goals and how he's enacting it through regulation? How does this land?
0: Yeah, so as we know, the president has some rulemaking power, right? In the executive branch, there's lots of um You know, state, defense, but also those more economically targeted departments like commerce, labor, transportation. With all that, the president has some latitude to set rules on how those um, on how those bureaucracies do their job. And so um, oftentimes they can pass regulations that don't need to go through Congress because they're deciding how the executive branch does its job. Joe Biden did, I believe it was 94 such rules within those departments, 94 what are called economically significant rules, that is, those rules with an impact on the economy of over 100 million, um, as projected by the budget office. Um, For comparison, Donald Trump passed 34 economically significant rules in his time in office, or, or rather, excuse me, in his first year in office, Um, And Barack Obama passed only 78 in his first year in office. And Barack Obama was not exactly a small government guy. So the fact that Joe Biden found, you know, 94 different ways that we should impact the economy to that extent um, negatively is a bit striking, particularly given that we were already recovering from the economic impact of our COVID response.
4: Yeah. And we see this in other areas. We see it in energy, of course. Folks don't realize, like, well, why are gas prices a lagging indicator? Well, because it has to be produced and, it has, and the production and transported is highly regulated. We see it in agriculture. We see it in manufacturing. We see it in transportation. We see it in healthcare. What is it about regulation? Because I, I've used this example before. It's like once they put these regulations in, they're there until somebody takes them back out. A lot of times they don't ever get adjusted, taken out, or updated this is the inertia of the American bureaucratic system and how it affects the economy, even when we're not paying attention to it. It just is. And it's always there. And it's always doing something, whether we realize it or not. And that's a big part of our economy that we don't really talk about much, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of ways you can think about how it affects people, right? Like, on one hand, regulations are almost like a tax. Um, They might make they might make a business's job more expensive, right? More say, you know, with building regulations, maybe they need a more expensive kind of insulation. With healthcare regulations, maybe you need to do a procedure a certain way with more expensive tools. You can think of anything across any sector where um, regulation fundamentally acts like a tax. It can also act as a barrier to entry, right? So you get less competition because fewer, new businesses can meet the price required to enter markets because of all the regulatory uh, overhead that they would need to acquire. That leads to higher prices for consumers. Those yeah. are my primary you know, regulatory concerns. Ultimately, um, they make life more expensive at different points in the process. And ultimately, that gets passed on to the consumer and has an impact on the broader economy.
4: Look, let's be honest here. This topic gets wonky. Every time I have an economist on, I always tell them, I was like, you know, there's a lot of math, and I don't like math, I admit it. I I never got past algebra one in school because you could still get away with it back then. You could take geometry and they'd slide you just so they'd get me out of the school. How do we talk better about economics with folks? I always ask this question anytime somebody economical comes onto the show. What's a better way to talk about this stuff? Is it the practical stuff like a gas prices or the covid stuff? Is it a is it more of a policy term of like we need to have a free market ideology or whatever you want to pick an ideology thing. When you're just talking to normal people or we're talking on our social media, what's the best way to kind of get into these economic issues? Is it the is it the people side of it is like hey, this affects you. Is it the government side of like hey, this is what our government's doing. What do you think?
0: Well, so what you're touching on is kind of the, the the broader question of economics and politics, right? And I think the best strategy to go about it is to target the people side, but to make sure that normal people understand the why at a very basic level, right? Like part of part of the great thing about a diversified economy is that not everybody needs to think about every issue all the time. Um, and that's kind of translated into our political system as well. We don't want people to have to think about the economics behind everything all the time, but they should be able to understand, say, why gas prices spiked, and that it's not just because you know Putin so willed it. <laughs> it's, it's because was- gratuitously made it more difficult in, during the recovery from the pandemic to import foreign gas and to drill within the United States And then we had an exogenous shock of the Ukraine crisis that made our supply go down and prices skyrocket, right? That is a very simple explanation that I think just about any regular old consumer can understand. And that is how we should be explaining economics to people, right? Yes, there is the people side, but when you give them that background information and give them sort of that broader theory like as supply goes down the prices go up um, that helps people understand and make more informed decisions it gives them the power at the to understand at the ballot box how to vote accordingly understanding of what goes into these prices
4: that impact on the economy we're going to talk about both the finance side and the government side of regulation because he's worked in finance we're going to ask him about that might also get a little bit more ancient egyptian worked in the mix somewhere in here We're having a great conversation with mike viola regulation from ancient times to modern times as her tale continues right after this Uh, welcome back For to sure. Hurt Tell. Mike Viola is joining us. Thrilled to have him. We're talking regulation. We're talking a lot of other things, too. It's understandable. One thing we talk about before is, you know, I said it about Trump, I'll say it about Biden. I said it about Obama and mm-hmm. all the presidents of my lifetime. When it comes to economics, the president always gets too much blame and too much credit. We know this is just a fact. Why do we have this cognitive dissidence where we don't seem to want to blame Congress, who does have the enumerated power of the purse? This is supposed to be there. This is supposed to be our direct representatives. How come we don't blame Congress for the economy more often? We more tend to go towards the president or things like this.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the fact that the presidency has taken such an outsized role in our politics has led people to think that the president affects you know everything under the sun. But that doesn't change the fact that, yes, we do need to pay more attention to Congress. A big problem with Congress, of course, is that in every spending bill, they like to add all of their own little regulations or handouts to their own district. Um, and oftentimes people like what their own hometown congressperson advocates for, right? So they're the sort of the issue because most people like their own congressional representatives and like what their own congressional representatives are doing. And you know, oftentimes don't really think that that is oftentimes where the real source of the problem is. If you add up the the local interests of every single person in Congress, Obviously, there's going to be a lot more than the United States can actually handle in terms of spending and in terms of the burden that it puts on our economy. Um, So Congress should be our true target. But I think given the president's outside role in our politics and the fact that it's a lot easier to blame someone who you didn't vote for at the local level, who's talking about all your local issues, The president becomes a much easier target for those people who want to imagine that one person is pulling the strings.
4: While we're defending the indefensible, big finance gets a bad rap, sometimes justifiably because they can be corrupt like everybody else. But you've worked in finance. Let people know the fact we're talking about these regulations, though. Even the stuff they do that is somewhat untoward and that people don't really like. A lot of that is dictated to them by regulation, though. How much of the financial sector, because you've worked on it and you also study economics, a lot of what they do is within the guide rails of the regulations that the government lays out for them, and then they're reacted to it. Talk about that a little bit, because that's another one of those economic things where I don't think we get the whole picture. We pick out one little part of it like, oh, well, they're raising prices on this or whatever. Regulation greatly affects how big finance and the financial sector reacts to things, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So when I worked in finance, my my most recent role was um, analyzing mutual funds that invest in bonds, right? So I would talk to people who buy up debt. And there I kind of learned um, that so many subsectors there are just so dependent on regulation, right? Like there were people who had to change their entire investment thesis because of different uh, lockdown regulations around the country, for example, right? Like when real world regulations have a huge effect on finance, but then there's also the impact on the financial sector itself, right? Across the country, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, we passed a lot of New regulations on the financial sector, and that led to small community banks around the country shuttering their doors because they couldn't meet the new banking regulations. So all that did was consolidate power for the biggest banks, which could then reach all around the country or move banks to say a purely online format without any sort of brick and mortar and all the convenience that you used to be able to have of being able to walk into a bank. So it actually made a lot of the banking experience worse for the normal consumer. In investments, that's true too. When I was writing investment analyses, the restrictions on what I could say and how I could characterize my own words were enormous, right? And so that seriously stifled um, the way that people discussed financial matters, right? Um, they often say that, you know, the the great thing about financial markets is that they communicate economic information ahead of time by the changes in asset prices, right? When sort of the smart money buys or sells something that should tell you what they really think the confidence in say a company uh, really is. But oftentimes I, as a writer in the financial industry, couldn't communicate that information because of, been run SEC regulations as to what could be presented as investment advice or opinion, which is heavily regulated and makes communicating critical information to investors much, much harder.
4: Does the government get to in its own way when it comes to things like this? And we know they overregulate because the bureaucratic state's first job is to perpetuate the bureaucratic state. And that doesn't matter who's the president. It's, it's, it does it for the Republicans and Democrats alike. But when it comes to policy stuff like that why is it so adversarial between the government and the private sector and the regular citizens and the people that control finance there's got to be some better way to do this right and whether that's you know less regulation is kind of a unicorn we're going to always chase but there's got to be some practical way for these folks to get along and at least work together a little bit better doesn't there
0: Uh, well i would certainly hope so um i i think Part of what's to blame is the use of different private institutions sort of as boogeymen, right? Like in 2008, big banks became the boogeymen, which while I I don't exactly think they were blameless, you know, that also comes in the context of essentially being threatened in the 90s by the Justice Department to give out loans that people couldn't pay off, right? So um, there is sort of this cycle of expecting American corporations to do the government's bidding or to institute projects that they believe they can do faster than the market can. And so I think there, there's a, it's a chicken and the egg question, right? I, I think a, a freer market would reduce that adversarial component between American business and consumers and government. But I'm not sure we could actually get there without a toning down of the rhetoric already.
4: Mike Viola is joining us. Great stuff. Speaking of toning down the rhetoric... Uh, you're a new friend of the program. We're definitely going to have you back, but friends hold friends accountable. I was looking at your Twitter feed. Let's talk about your rhetoric a little bit here. Uh, There was the tragic incident outside of Memphis where a truck carrying Alfredo sauce spilled all over I-55. I know that road well because I was in Little Rock for a couple of years. And you quoted, and I quote, good, Alfredo is the worst so-called, in quotes, Italian sauce. Mike Viola, defend your tweet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I will just say, I have never at any real Italian restaurant had Alfredo. My grandparents came here from Italy in the late fifties. They never made anything called an Alfredo. It is a mess of heavy cream, which is hardly ever used in Italian cooking. Um, Now, if you wanted to make, say, a nice cacio e pepe with, you know, olive oil and cheese, maybe a little butter, totally fair. But this heavy cream canned nonsense that we call alfredo i build all over a highway is exactly where it belongs i i see no use for it you may think you like alfredo. first of all
4: and of course here's the real thing <laughs> yeah first of all of course yeah american italian food is a whole different thing than actual italian food let's just get that right because almost all of what we know of as American Italian with all the cheese and all that stuff, that all came out of New York city and the immigrant population. That's different than if you actually go to Italy, which I have done because I lived in Europe twice and you eat eat Italian food. It's completely different, but same can be said for Mexican food and Tex-Mex and other things. We always put our spin on. So yeah, Alfredo is a, is a uniquely American tradition. However, it's still pretty good to eat as long as you don't, I guess the Italian thing would probably bother you, but it, it, look, I'd probably be the same way about pepperoni rolls, but we can hash that out some other day. Uh, Mike Viola. <laughs> Mike Viola, having a little fun with it at the end of it. Great information today. Um, He's at Fee, which puts out all kinds of great stuff. A couple of our other friends are there. Uh, Till we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep track of what you got going on until we see you again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Probably the easiest place would be um, on Twitter. It's at MF underscore Viola someone else beat me to the version without the underscore. So I'm just always relegated to having punctuation in my handle, but uh, that's probably the easiest spot to find me.
4: Uh, Fantastic stuff. That's on the screen uh, right under his uh, lovely face there. If you're watching on YouTube, we'll also link to his article and all his social media. And of course the work at fee, make sure you follow. They got a lot of different stuff going on with some friends of ours. Make sure you're checking out fee.org. Mike Viola, this was a pleasure. We will do it again soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. It's really a pleasure.
4: Yes, sir. detailing this down for you know school age young people high school kids especially you know maybe some young college kids that sort of age group i mean that's this is almost like a children's parable when you think about it if you just pulled it out of the blue sky and told it it's like oh that's some kind of a parable for a teaching moment yeah. but this really happened and it not only happened we got it on high definition video Yeah. i mean th- this is like this is this is living history that we just experienced how do we keep it in the public consciousness? Cause the media's already moved on from this story. You'll, you hardly ever hear about Hong Kong in us media right now, Western media. Yeah, yeah. Even, even, you know, BBC and sky news that has bureaus there. You hardly ever hear anything about the protests anymore and I watch it every day. How do you use those stories and that video and the stories of grace and others and start getting it into these kids so that the next generation already has it inculcated into them?
8: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, the point of the dissident project, right? Um, if the generations who are controlling the media, uh, now aren't focused on it, then how do we, how do we uh, rectify that situation? We go to younger generations and we, we change the way that people will tell the story moving forward. That's the whole point of the dissident project. And it's incredibly important.
4: Francis, you talked about, um, You know, having hope and then having no hope. We watched it from afar. So we see the full sequence of events for the people in Hong Kong. It was probably a very different in how they perceive things. When was the moment that they they really knew that, you know, China had the full control and this was going to get bad? Was it the judicial reforms? Was it shutting down the free press? Uh, a lot of people that we talked to in Western media, they said when they canceled the vigil, which is always a big, big deal in Hong Kong, when yeah. they canceled that and didn't get a lot of pushback, that's kind of when they knew. When was it for you and, and for the folks there, when was one of the two, the milepost where they went, okay, this, this is going to get bad?
9: I would say for me, it's, it's two things, two events. The first is the, when the national security law was implemented in Hong Kong. Um, that happened in July 2020 after the, the protest in 2019. Um, that's the thing that when at the first time when um, we see a law from China being imposed in Hong Kong, And without any any consent or without any process of consulting the community or the people, it completely bypassed the legislative body. Um, It's really a law that was passed by the people's of uh, people's Congress and uh, of the CCP, and implemented in Hong Kong. And it was a news that was they only published they only announced this news in June, which is one month before. The implementation of the law and people start to wonder like how effective or how are they going to enforce this law like how big it is going to cover is it going to trace back to what people have done before um does that mean saying you know advocating for hong kong independence or you know as simple as supporting democracy in hong kong would be criminalized right um so there is like a um, uh people's there is like a feeling of uncertainty all around the city and then when they really when they have the first arrestee of the national security law that's when people start to realize okay that's the boundary that's that's a red line but still even though you can see you know a very blurry red line it, it's still like very it's still something it's it it's like I don't know if people can see that as an indicator of what they can do or not because they can change the rule anytime and then when they arrest someone for something that they have done in the past people start to wonder oh my god like so all of my involvement in the 2019 movement can be can become an evident um and and so Eventually, there is like a feeling of white terror, a, a self-censorship in the city. And people would be like, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, when you go into social media, they don't even know if they can share this news because that can be one of the evidence against them. And um, I think the the implementation of the NSL really strikes the city and completely... Um, completely demolished the freedom and what we have developed in the past um and that's was also one of the reasons why i left hong kong and i would say the second events that happened and it really br- brought people down would be the arrest of the 47 um d- uh, pro-democracy activists in hong kong um, they were arrested all all of the sudden in one morning and the court e- couldn't even handle so many people they couldn't even handle to have trials on, on these people they just didn't plan it they just wanted to arrest everyone who have any who have so much influence in the city and after they were arrested basically all kinds of civil activities and protests or any sort of resistance stopped right there because these people are are the people who initiate campaigns and and look at policies and speak up against the government. And when these leaders were arrested, basically the people do not know what they can do. And because there is the 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 scariest the scariest part is that they have a hotline to report things. So if you if anyone witness or hear overheard any conversations that deemed to violate the national security law, they can report it to the hotline and the police would come to your door and arrest you. And so there is also the the hope, the trust that was built between the community is gone now. And the only thing that people can do to live a okay life in Hong Kong is to only care about living, but not to care about what's going on in the city and what's going on around them. So... I would say that's the two things that really strikes me in in the people of Hong Kong.
4: Francis and Grace are joining us from the Distant Project. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, continue to talk about Hong Kong, how do you teach these lessons, what to learn from them. We're going to talk a little bit more about authoritative dictatorships from firsthand knowledge, communism, socialism, because we throw those terms around. We need to be real specific what we're talking about. More with Francis and Grace right after this. It's a very special. herd tale continues. We might have heard tell. Grace is joining us. Francis is joining us. They're both from the Dissident Project. Um, Grace, real quick, we just heard her, you know, more of her story and what's going on in Hong Kong. It's not just Hong Kong. We have multiple people in the Dissident Project um, from all over different parts of the world. The theme that goes across all of these, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's North Korea authoritative dictatorships who need power and they have to crush dissent and they have to crush other people's freedoms to keep that power this is universal through human history it's always going to be this way throughout human history i think how do you tell that part of the story that hey this isn't just some ideological term we throw around on social media this is a part of the human experience for as long as we have recorded history and it's happening right now to real life people that through technology you can talk to like francis
8: yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in addition to uh, you know the dissidents telling their personal stories, which is uh, an incredibly important part of this, um, they also talk about the technical details of uh, how these authoritarian governments uh, begin, how they take over, um, how socialism leads to communism, the economic the economic implications of these systems uh, for the citizens of their home countries. Um, and so it's not just uh, that they're telling their personal stories, but they really are reaching back into history and talking about how these things happen, um, how uh, people groups become oppressed, uh, how countries fall into authoritarian rule.
4: And, Francis, we know the history of how Hong Kong fell under authoritative rule. We know, you know, it was British. Now the Chinese have control of it. What's the future? And I don't I don't want to be bleak about it, but, you know, the, the Communist Chinese Party is very ingrained. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. What's the immediate future of Hong Kong? Are are they going to get even more freedoms taken away? What's the status right now today? Because like we mentioned before, the Western media has kind of stopped covering it, unfortunately, since probably the, the 2019 where we had those visual things. What's been going on since then and what do you anticipate in the near future?
9: Well, as I said, on a on a civil activity level, there's none. There's no um, protest going on in the streets. Um, and but then I also want to mention that I think there are still resistance uh, among the people. You know, you can't you can't shut people's mouth like all of a sudden and erase their memories. I think that's something we can hold hope on, and. Um, when there is such a huge um, oppression that exists in in the city that's when arts start to evolve and that's when create like creation starts to come out and we see many people start to um, pay more attention to local arts and local music and you know just everything that's coming out from Hong Kong because they know that's what they can what our national identity is contained to um, and they start to embrace more about the local cultures and that's how they practice and how they really lift their identity out as a Hong Konger so you see there are a lot of different art different um, special unique things that comes out from the city and our parts in excel is to promote about it and to you know amplify that um because the people back people in hong kong they do not get as much exposure and attention as they have before um and i think even now like within arts you can see people's voice are continue they are continuing to speak up and 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 to tend to, to say the values they 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 want to embrace so um when you look at little things and basically things that comes out from the city it's very it's just amazing and i i think um that's the thing that we can look forward to and who knows like i think back in 2014 i didn't imagine that something as big as as massive as the 2019 movement would happen so Perhaps we can have hope that in the future, something like that could happen even and, and something even bigger. We don't know. And I can only tell you that, you know, for people like us outside, we have the responsibility to amplify their voice and to uh, continue to bring attention to them. And that's why I'm with the Dissident Project, because I want to tell the story of Hong Kong, basically.
4: Are are you aware of that as you do your advocacy? And I I know we're talking with Grace. You know the way you've built the Dissonant Project. It's going to be very online. It's very multimedia. It's multi-platform. We call it on purpose. Are you are you cognizant of that? It's like you don't really know what's going to break through not just the Hong Kong, but the Chinese people themselves. I know they keep a real tight lock on the technology, but you never know what might get through and you never know who might get to see it. And that little sliver, like, like for example, when Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan and, and the CCP just absolutely freaked out, you know, we kind of tell you, it's like, it's not just that they're free. That scares them to death because somebody might see that and they might see somebody that's free and they might see a country that's free and something are you really cognizant of that? It's like, every time I do this, every time I make a YouTube video, every time I do an interview, you just never know what might slide through and inspire that one more person.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Like, they would send millions of people online, like robots, to comment under video and to basically send you create a huge backlash online against your video or anything that you do. And that's when you know this is something they care about and they're scared of. And so we would do that more. Um, I can, you know, a lot of times sanctions does help. Um, Sometimes when they're trying to do evil things and little things and they thought no one is going to pay attention to and we reveal that truth, they are scared too. So, um, I, you know, I, we, we're we'll just continue to do that more often, you know?
4: Yeah. I've had a few run-ins with those state sponsored tag Twitter accounts, uh, once or <laughs> twice, cause I don't care. I say what I think of them and they know exactly where I stand on that. Grace, you have to know that though, when you put this project together, they are very, the, the CP propaganda online, it's very active. There's a lot of bots out there. They have a lot of malicious stuff out there. You got to be aware of that when you put this project together. It's like this isn't just going to be us talking to kids. This is a worldwide audience and there's some really bad people just going to be watching us and not liking what we're doing, too. Right.
8: Oh, yeah. Yes, we're very aware. Um, And I think uh, being strategic with our language um, has been really important for us. Not only as we consider those different factors, which are huge in the safety of our distance, which is huge, um, but also reaching as many people as possible, right? We want to reach people in the movable middle. Uh, We want to talk about human rights abuses. We want to talk about liberty. We want to use language that will be as uh, accessible as possible for as many people as possible. So we're being very cognizant of all of those different factors.
4: Yeah, it's a tough road to hoe because you just you want to say certain things to people that are just that out now, wicked. But at the same time, you got to understand there's another audience. So God bless you for walking that hard line. Uh, We're going to take one more quick break. We come back. We're going to kind of wrap this up a little bit more about the dissident project. We're going to talk about those kids they are going to be talking to in the schools, the reactions, what it's like to talk to them, what it brings up in the people that do it. Because sometimes we just see the people standing in front of the room and, and you need to know what it feels like to stand up there. I've had to do that a little bit myself sometimes more with grace more with Francis as we continue her tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Hurt Tell, talking to our good friends Grace and Francis, The Dissident Project. Um, Francis, when you go to something like a school or even like a college or something like this, and you have that room full of people and they're just staring at you, you, you know you've got a message that matters. You know this is life and death stuff to the people of Hong Kong. What goes through your mind in that minute before you kind of get into your, your routine and the things you normally say? And you just got all those people staring at you and you're like, do you feel the weight of it? Does it hit you like, oh, what am I doing here? This, this is not exactly what my life plan was.
9: <laughs> well, I would say all the activists or dissidents that come out from our country did not imagine that we were living the life that we we're living right now. That's one thing. I have my own dream and that's not something... Related to politics, obviously. Um, And I didn't imagine myself would be standing in front of the classroom and talking to a bunch of students about Hong Kong. And, um, but that's what I have to do, right? And so I I remind myself what I'm here for, Um, not just for my people. It's not like I am a great leader that is, it's like living a life against what I, against my will. It's, It's really for myself and for people I care. And, you know, I have family and friends back home in Hong Kong. And those are the people that keep me fighting um, till now. So um, I just remind myself, like, you know, this is what I'm here for. and I'm, I'm going gonna to do great. And if they're going to stare at me continually, then I would be, you know, I, I, I would just tell them, you know, let's put 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 yourself in my shoes and think about what it would be like to live a life that without freedom, a life that you would scare to death that one day the police are gonna knock on your door and take your parents away, that's it, you know? And that's the life that many dissidents are living in, and people living under um, a communist rule are facing. So um, once you tell that kind of scenario and that kind of story, um, you're gonna capture their attention. <laughs>
4: Yeah. I hate to correct guess. I rarely do it, but you're wrong, by the way. You are a great leader, uh, <laughs> just so you know, and somebody tells you publicly. great. back to Hurtel. Tell. Uh, this is going to be a little touchy, but we're going to work through it because this man is so smart. He's going to explain it. So even I understand, talk a little First Amendment today, uh, <laughs> that's something we talk about frequently on our show. Adam Steinbaugh from FIRE is with us. Uh, sir, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start big picture before we get into the specifics of this case, because Here's something we talk about on our show a lot. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. We say things online. We say things in the media. Things become buzzwords. But when you go to do legislation, when you go to do a lawsuit, when you're talking about the law, you have to write these things down in black and white. So with that in mind, sir, what is the legal definition of woke? Because if we're going to write laws about it, you think we would have a common definition of it. Do we?
10: No. Woke is a... Uh, A term that escapes definition, Uh, it means different things to different people, uh, and its definition can almost change with the tone of your voice. Uh, So if you say, yeah, I'm woke, uh, maybe that is, uh, (laughs) you have a specific definition of that. But if someone says you're woke, uh, they probably have a very different meaning of what woke is. But
4: that's, and I'm doing that a little teasingly, but that's kind of the crux of the problem when you legislate or try to do law with something like this is you can't just say something like a buzzword on social media. You have to write it down and you got to write it down in black and white. So when you get to something like the stop woke act, and they're using that as an acronym, we'll get into that as well. This is not just a spouting off on lines. Once you write it in black and white, it has to go up for judicial review. It has to match up to the constitution. There's layers of why when you put something in black and white, that it matters That's the piece of this argument I think a lot of people just kind of skip over. It's like, you can't just say you don't like something. You not
10: only write legislation about it, legally, you have to define it, right? You have to define it, and you have to do it in such a way that people can read it and understand what is prohibited and what is not. So that is especially important with speech, because if you have terms that uh, maybe are nuanced or vague uh, or just incomprehensible, uh, people will look at the law and say, you know it's more rational for me to not say anything than to say something that uh, is going to risk consequences, whether for me or my colleagues or my institution. And that is critical here where you have a law that uh, lists a number of uh, viewpoints that you are not allowed to endorse. Uh, and if you do endorse them or you're, or a uh, court or your institution or, Uh, a panel of lawmakers uh, thinks that you endorse these viewpoints, your institution could lose tens of millions of of dollars in funding. So that that puts a big old thumb on the scales in terms of uh, preventing people from uh, being courageous enough to uh, articulate concepts or discuss concepts uh, in higher education. And that is the last place where you want to make people timid uh, of debating ideas.
4: Here's another place where the terminology comes in. We talk about things like academic freedom. Um, That's kind of a vague term. People kind of generally know that, but where does that become problematic? Because we understand academic freedom of, oh, I'm going to say something and you're going to disagree and we're going to hash it out in a classroom setting. I think that's what most people have in mind. If you had a legal definition of that, though, it's a lot more vague what people can and can't do. And since let's just be honest here. A lot of these colleges are state institutions, and then you have private institutions. That's where freedom of speech and the law on freedom of speech starts to get a lot more complicated, right?
10: Well, it's uh, there is no, you know, there, there's a case in the 11th Circuit that says that there's no independent right to academic freedom. So, you know, if you look at the the First Amendment, there is uh, nothing in there that explicitly says academic freedom. But that comes from tradition, and it comes from Uh, The way that we conceptualize our universities and colleges, which is that we want these to be places where people learn from competing ideas and from being uninhibited to discuss those ideas. Uh, So uh, whether or not you label it academic freedom uh, or you identify the right uh, via the First Amendment, uh, you know, it is... Uh, important to protect. And at public universities and colleges, you know, because they are state institutions, the First Amendment applies to uh, the way that they regulate student and faculty speech. Uh, And uh, at private institutions, the First Amendment doesn't apply, but most of those institutions or most educational institutions promise academic freedom or freedom of speech to their students and faculty, because who would want to go to a college that doesn't promise that?
4: So let's talk about this law specifically. There's two parts to this. There's the political part and then there's the legislative law part of it. Start with the legislative part of it. The accusation against it, and we're going to post to link directly to the legislation. Please read it for yourself. Like we always say on our program, read this thing for yourself. The accusation is there's a lot of vague language and that it's not specific and that the things it is specific on are things that legally are going to be problematic. Is that a good Reader's Digest version of the problems here?
10: Yeah, I think so. Uh, it is uh, a law that, in you know, reading it, you know, I I'm a First Amendment lawyer. Uh, I my organization has defended faculty on both the right and the left for uh, a very long time, and that is my role: is to be able to tell people what they can and can't say in the classroom, and be able to defend them when they uh, are approaching the line of what is uh, prohibited or permissible. Uh, I take a look at this law, and I can't. I can't give people a good prediction of what it does prohibit and what it protects.
4: Yeah. Adam Steinbaugh joining us from FIRE. When you decided to make this into a lawsuit, um, there's another terminology thing. We always think about it. And I was like, well, I'm going to sue somebody. Well, it doesn't really work that way. You have to have standing. You have to have cause and you have to have, you know, a reason to do it. Walk us through the general, walk us through the general public here. You're standing. Why you think you have a case here, and what you're hoping to accomplish with the lawsuit?
10: Well, uh, we have a case because when you have uh, lawmakers and uh, the governor uh, team up and pass a statute, and this is, you know, one of the, the main legislative goals that they had at a, uh, you know, multiple press conferences and press releases, and you know, really heralded this law. So they're very serious about this law, uh, and. Uh, When you have that dynamic and when you have a law that uh, affects speech uh, and that purports to regulate speech, that can have a chilling effect. And uh, if you are a faculty member, uh, you know, as here, a faculty member who teaches history, who teaches about uh, uh, issues of race and history, uh, and you have to put together a syllabus or you are marching into class to uh, you know, debate these uh, things or discuss these things with students or lecture on these subjects, if you look at the law and you can't figure out whether or not your speech is prohibited uh, or protected by the First Amendment, uh, you are going to rationally uh, refrain from speaking or lecturing or even getting close to these subjects. Uh, so when you have an objective chill like we do here, uh, it is not just someone who uh, is coming in and uh, is just kind of theorizing uh, and spitballing that maybe the law applies. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's a good argument that the law applies here. Uh, and uh, for that, you can go to a court and you can say, look, uh, I can come before the court, even though I haven't been prosecuted or uh, suspended or terminated or otherwise punished under the law, I can come to the court before that happens in order to get clarification about what the law does protect or what it does prohibit and whether or not it's constitutional, because we want to protect the ability of people to be able to speak without being punished for it. So uh, normally when you have a violation of constitutional rights, you have to wait for the enforcement of the law against you. But the First Amendment is different in that we want people to to be able to come to a court uh, and to get clarification about that so that everyone can speak.
4: Yeah. Now that's the legal side of this. There's a political and a public side to these things, obviously, because, you know, let's be honest, you had to write a press release about why you're doing a lawsuit. It's just part of the business, right? When you're discussing that piece of it, before we even get into the particulars of it, what is it about these types of things? When you have a politically charged thing, you mentioned it. You're a First Amendment lawyer. You defend people on the right and the left and whatever else why does the first amendment have to be a double-edged sword that goes both ways? That it, we, it, it has to be something that also offends you, not just that it also gives you a right to speak out publicly, just walk people through why it's so important not to just go after it's like, well, I want to protect what is meaningful to me because that may not be the same for somebody else. And that gets to the heart of what a right is, doesn't
10: it? Yeah. It's the first amendment is, uh, uh, or it's supposed to be a viewpoint and content neutral right. So uh, the limitations that you impose on speech are limitations that are going, you know, if those limitations are permissible, if those are limitations are constitutionally viable, they're going to be applied to uh, your enemies as well as your allies. So uh, if deep offense to a particular idea uh, or particular speech is sufficient to remove speech from the protection of the first amendment, that's a broad range of power, and it's going to be abused by people who hold power, because the First Amendment is, uh, at its core, a counter-majoritarian right. It is uh, the defense for people who uh, are on the losing side of popularity. Uh, So it is what protects unpopular speech. And that is not, you know, some speech is going to be popular in some parts of the country, uh, and unpopular in others. Uh, And If a state can take a list of ideas that they uh, have determined that are extremely offensive uh, and just plumb wrong, and they say, if you endorse these ideas, that is de facto discrimination, that's a tool that you could see a a blue state legislature picking up on the other end uh, and saying, if you criticize these ideas or if you you endorse criticism of these ideas, that is discrimination. And now what you say, will uh, if you're a professor or a student uh, in a given state, uh, whether or not what you say is uh, discriminatory will depend on which state you're in. And that's not how the First Amendment should work.
4: Now, Adam Steinbaum, joining us from FIRE, we're talking about the uh, Stop WOKE Act. That WOKE there is an acronym down in Florida. We're going to continue to talk about this. We're going to get into a couple of the points he points out specifically in this bill. There's already been some legal things going on with it. We'll discuss that and some more about the First Amendment and some nomenclature that you see all over your social media. We're gonna ask him about it, see whether it holds up to snuff or not. Adam Steinborn continues to join us on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell, talking some First Amendment with our friend Adam Steinbaugh. He's from FIRE, a wonderful organization. If you're not following him, you need to. They might make you mad from time to time, as he said, because they defend everybody. They're all about the First Amendment and freedom. Uh, let's talk about something specific in this bill, and you brought it up as part of the lawsuit. Uh, there's vague language in here, but there's also some really specific language that is problematic, um, when you dig down into it, you pointed out that there's prohibits instructions on eight specific concepts, race, color, national origin, sex that run counter to the government officials notion of, and in air quotes here, freedom, how much of this is a nomenclature problem and how much of this is a constitutional issue? Because again, here we go. We got terminology like, you know, freedom, race, color. These are things that are all over every Supreme court case we read. Why are they problematic in this bill when they are in this specific sequence for this specific reason?
10: Uh, it's because it's regulating speech, and it's saying that you know these are the concepts, or these are the ideas, or these are the conclusions that you are not allowed to endorse. Uh, and under the First Amendment, there is no such thing as a false idea. Uh, you know, it gets it gets a little bit trickier when it comes to the hard sciences because people can uh, you know come to uh, more objective definitions uh, in the hard sciences, but when you're talking about the you know the so-called soft sciences or the social sciences uh, or uh, matters of uh, race uh, and um, you know just the the social makeup of our country. These are charged and difficult issues, uh, and those you can only win out uh, or you can only resolve or try to resolve uh, through debate. Uh, it is not something that uh, a legislature can dictate by fiat, as you know. Here's the winner in the marketplace of ideas. Um, so. That is not a power that a legislature should have, uh, and it is important that we uh, defend that or contest that at every turn.
4: Now, your lawsuit is not the only lawsuit on this topic. There's other legal action going. In fact, there's already been part of the provisions blocked by a judge, but your lawsuit is very specific. You are narrowing it down to the higher education portion of this. You're also not going into the race and gender stuff. Why did you limit it to higher education? And you already somewhat touched on the topic of this. But what is it about the opinion of higher education faculties? This has really been the front side of um, First Amendment speech because we're hearing about all this stuff, you know, academic freedom in the classroom. We see all the viral videos of people arguing with professors and protesters in classrooms and outside speakers. This is something that's really in the forefront of a lot of the cultural edge of our politics right now. Why did you narrow it in this lawsuit to focus specifically on the higher education?
10: Well, you know, fire has been in the higher education uh, freedom business for uh, you know, about a quarter century now. Uh, so a little bit of it is just that that is what we are used to defending. Uh, but I think more importantly is that there is a distinction between higher education and K through 12. K through 12, obviously, the people who uh, are sitting at the desk in a K through 12 classroom uh, are generally not adults, uh, they are generally not there by choice, uh, they are legally compelled to be there, and the function of K-12 through 12, uh, has a greater emphasis on communicating community values and instilling community values to uh, students. So that involves uh, a greater leeway of uh, curricular choices or, or gives greater leeway to the government uh, to define what those curricular choices are. Uh, and for the community to to define its own values, if you can test that or contrast that with higher education, these are students who are by and large adults. Uh, you can hand them a rifle and send them uh, overseas to serve our country, uh, and uh, they can uh, sign up for uh, very expensive um, loans in order to go to college. And you know they are capable of making their own decisions. Uh, they can vote. They are fully, uh, you know, full participants in our society. Uh, And they should not be shielded from ideas simply because they are offensive. So uh, aside from, you know, who is in the classroom, the purpose of higher education uh, involves different functions than K through 12. Uh, So you go to college in order to encounter different ideas, and then to contrast those and discuss them and figure out where you stand on those ideas. That's uh, you know, while there there are some gray areas uh, in K through twelve, you can imagine a high school senior is probably going to be a little bit more rebellious and maybe uh, looking to uh, ideas that they might find subversive. Or um, uh, anyway, they they uh, the the purpose of higher education is to encounter ideas that are different, whereas K through twelve uh, is to Uh, be sort of on the receiving end of the ideas that society wants to impart. Uh, And that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Uh, I think that uh, the lesson from Tinker v. Des Moines, uh, which you may recall is the case in which uh, students wore black armbands in class to protest against the Vietnam War, uh, the lesson from that is that uh, students can dissent from whatever the majoritarian view is, uh, even if they are in a high school or middle school. Um, But the information they receive uh, is going to be different than it is in higher ed. So uh, higher ed and K-12 are just fundamentally different, and it's important to protect the uh, open marketplace of ideas in higher education. And uh, that is particularly critical where you have lawmakers or state legislature trying to dictate what will be orthodox and what is not.
4: Yeah, but you raise an excellent point. Something that doesn't get discussed here either is, When you're dealing with secondary education as opposed to higher education, you've got an additional layer there because they're not adults. So you have parents. So what is the law? You know, we have this debate. We've had it with the guns and medical care and everything. You know, are you magically an adult at age 18? Should your First Amendment rights change when you magically become an adult? And does your parents speak for you before? That seems like something down the road that's really going to get hashed out when we discuss these. There's again your lawsuit focusing on higher ed, but there's going to be other lawsuits about the high school edge of this. That's something that's not that's not going to really get solved anytime soon. It's going to remain contentious of how much speech can a parent guard from the school system over their child,
10: right? I think so, uh, but I, I want to distinguish, you know, make a, a draw a line between what a K through 12 institution imparts on kids in their class uh, as opposed to uh, what students choose to believe uh, or to say or to read. Uh, so it's one thing to say, okay, in the following, you know, in the, the following periods of your classes today, you're going to learn the following subjects, and this is how they're going to be taught. It's another thing to say, these are the types of books you were allowed to check out from the library and exercise in your own choice, because students. Uh, You know, especially as they get older, they're autonomous. They have their own rights. Uh, And, uh, you know, parents have uh, certainly important uh, rights in determining uh, or guiding the education of their students. Uh, But that doesn't mean that students, uh, that the First Amendment rights uh, for, uh, you know, a young person uh, turn on or off on the day they turn 18.
4: join us. Okay, you're a First Amendment lawyer. For the purposes of this conversation, we're not going to hold that against you, but we are going to ask you some questions (laughs) about it because you may have noticed that online, especially on the interwebs and on things like Twitter and Facebook, there's a lot of bad legal advice regarding the First Amendment floating around, so we're going to ask you a couple questions about a few of them. Uh, Let's start with one of everybody's favorites that's just gotten flogged to death in the wrong direction, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, Walk us through that one a little bit because everybody seems to want to Spin that one out whenever there's a debate online. I don't think they really realize what they're actually saying and where that trope comes from. Just deal with that one real quick for us.
10: Well, it was a, a metaphor. And it's it's catchy. It's clever. It, it captures a concept uh, for a lot of people, which is that, you know, some speech is unprotected. But that's a truism. Uh, and I think that uh, what people tend to deploy it as is as, as a you know, sort of a, an escape hatch to say, you know, there, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, so therefore, whatever speech I dislike is also unprotected. And that's not how the First Amendment works, and it is not helpful, uh, because it, uh, that truism doesn't give you an argument. It doesn't explain why the speech that you think is unprotected or should be unprotected should be unprotected. Uh, so uh, if someone is saying, well, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, like, that's that's true, but it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, and Uh, It is almost always being deployed as a means of trying to argue that there should be less free speech. And it's almost always wrong.
4: It's funny you phrase it that way, because one of the things talking about the lawsuit previously that was mentioned in the press release, you all said was like, you can't censor yourself to free speech. That seems like such a simple line. And yet you could usually do this for a lot of government regulation, frankly, not just you can't self censor free speech to more free speech. It's never going to work
10: that way, is it? No, uh, I think that uh, government leave, or the First Amendment leaves choices about what to say and how to say it to the speaker, uh, and a lot of you know what is contested about the First Amendment or or what the First Amendment serves is about leaving the decision or leaving decisions uh, about what speech is appropriate to the listener and to the speaker. Uh, so, uh, if you are sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner uh, and uh, uh you disagree with your relatives about whatever the latest political poop law is uh you might self-censor in order to have a good discussion about you know family goings-ons uh at dinner uh so uh you know it uh, it's it's sort of a truism that uh you're not going to self uh, censor your way to more free speech uh but it's also true, I think, that, you know, the, the government is not going to be able to uh, credibly decide what speech is appropriate and what speech is not appropriate in order to try to come up with a more free speech environment.
4: Uh, uh, here's a good one. We've heard this one a bunch over the years. Speech cannot cause harm by itself. Well, that's kind of one of those that, well, it depends on the definition of is there, but speech cannot cause harm by itself. That's one we keep hearing over and over again.
10: Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by harm. Uh, speech is powerful. It can hurt you. It can really make people mad. Uh, and we use freedom of speech as a means to uh, avoid violence. It is a way for society to resolve problems without just resorting to violence. Um, it's, you know it's, We talk through problems. Uh, and uh, that means that uh, some speech is going to hurt. It is going to be... It is going to cause you know, some fall of harm, but it is unlikely that the type of harm, because harm is a sort of a subjective uh, and vague word, um, we don't want to limit speech just because it causes harm, because that harm might not be tangible. It might not be something that we can objectively identify. And if you can't objectively identify tangible harm, uh, and you try to regulate speech on that basis. That gives uh, government uh, and the authorities a lot of leeway to punish speech, which they will inevitably abuse.
4: So you're saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me is not sound legal advice when it comes to the First Amendment. Uh,
10: I generally don't get my legal advice from anything that rhymes.
4: That's a good rule of thumb to have. <laughs> um, continuing to talk to Adam Steinbach, our friend. Here's one that folks get in a little bit of a twist. Um, Again, this one depends because I've I've actually said this one myself sometimes. So uh, the best remedy for disfavored speech is more speech or the other, you know, if you put it in the vernacular like we normal people talk, the best remedy for bad speech is more good speech. How's that one land with you in the
10: First Amendment, do you think? I like it, but that doesn't mean that more speech is always the remedy. It's just the remedy that the First Amendment prefers to censorship. So uh, if you encounter you know, someone standing on a street corner who is trying to explain to you that the moon landing was faked, you debating them is probably not going to be the best remedy to that. You walking away might be the best remedy to that. Uh, so uh, that is the solution to free speech uh, or to offensive speech is something that the First Amendment leaves to the person you know encountering it. Uh, they can answer back. They can give a full-throated response or they could walk away. Uh, but what they can't do is censor.
4: Yeah, and that one leads us to our final one that I've got lined up for you. Censorship, everybody thinks online, social media restrictions are a form of censorship. Does the First Amendment trump that little box everybody clicked and didn't read all the information about terms of service? Or are their free speech rights really being trampled when they get a timeout on Twitter?
10: Well, I think there's you know free speech is a cultural value. The First Amendment refers to the freedom of speech. Uh, and there's the First Amendment as a legal principle. Uh, the First Amendment generally protects uh, the content content decisions by Twitter and its users. So, uh, if you go and block someone on Twitter, uh, you're probably inhibiting their speech. They, you're definitely preventing them from talking to you and talking to the other people that you talk to, uh, and you know that is a limitation on their uh, you know broader freedom of speech. But it has nothing to do with the First Amendment because the First Amendment uh, only limits government actors, and Twitter is not a government actor. Uh, so. Uh, if Twitter uh, decides to promote particular speech or to remove particular speech, uh, that may be an illiberal decision. That may be a bad decision, uh, but it is also a decision that is protected by the first amendment because the first amendment defers that decision to people, not the government.
4: Yeah. Good stuff. Adam Steinbaum joining us. Uh, Speaking of censoring and editing, Uh, We were looking at your Twitter feed, my friend, and, you know, friends Uh are friends accountable. On September the 1st, you tweeted, and I'm quoting, the edit button is a good idea, and I, (laughs) lowercase I, will edit this tweet if it turns out to be a bad idea. Adam Steinbaugh, defend your tweet.
10: Uh, Can we edit this later? (laughs) I will not defend anything. You know, there's some speech I will defend, but I cannot defend anything I say. That is just over the line.
4: i am actually see this is actually a good teachable point, though, because ever since they started on Twitter, I've been on Twitter about four or five years now. Everybody always talks about the edit button and it's like, I don't know that I want an edit button because I can either delete the whole thing or I can just fix it or I can just leave it. I usually just leave it because it's become part of the thing. As everybody knows, I can't spell and I can't pronounce things right. I just kind of leave it. You know, where do you fall on something like that? Should people mis- have a right to fix their mistakes? It's kind of a silly thing when it comes to Twitter, but there, there is a free speech concept buried in there of like, do you have a right to fix your own mistake? Uh,
6: I don't
10: know if I'd frame it as a right. Uh, I think it is useful. I like the idea of an edit button because I think it allows people to, uh, you know, people get things wrong. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be some scoundrels out there who, Ah, uh, we'll just never correct a mistake on Twitter. But some people, you know, uh, once you get a lot of traffic going to a tweet uh, and and you think you've made a mistake, you might want to alert everyone else to say, like, hey, I was wrong. you know I'm fessing up. here's what I was wrong about. That might do a lot of good to uh, protect against uh, you know misinformation or people's mistakes. Uh, so, um, I like the idea as long it is as it is very transparent that there has been an edit because I think uh, it's important to ward against uh, people abusing that and you know essentially fooling people, which I will absolutely abuse. Uh, but uh, I think that as long as it's transparent and you can see when something has been edited and how it has been edited, I think that's helpful.
4: Yeah. Uh, just full disclosure here, we self-censor because you also had a spammers joke in there that we let go. So we weren't trying to be too harsh with you. Adam Steinbaugh <laughs> uh, joining us from FIRE. Appreciate your time on this. That's a lighter side of a very heavy topic, but we need to do that to get through the days we live in. Where can folks follow you and follow the work at FIRE and keep up with this lawsuit as it goes forward until we see you again on Tell Again, my friend?
10: Uh, well, you can check out our website, thefire.org, T-H-E-F-I-R-E, uh, dot org. Um, or, uh, and you could also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle is the Fire TheFireOrg, uh, and I would not recommend following me on Twitter because I will abuse that.
4: Yeah. The Fire is an excellent organization, uh, kind of what the ACLU used to be when they still had their faculties about them. They defend everybody. They defend free speech, uh, like it, don't like it, good, bad, indifferent, great organization, and very much appreciate your time and expertise today, sir. Really looking forward to having you back again, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
7: Without the
10: ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.